Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. It's time for Bite Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt Allen. And just like that, we're back and we're set for UFC 285. It already feels like the biggest pay-per-view card of this year. The returning GOAT taking on the former French interim champ in the main event, as always, one half of your hosting duo, Craig Allen, Twitter and Instagram, Craig Allen FNP. With me to my left, to your right, respective socials, at Matt Allen FNP. And last weekend, we absolutely clobbered at 8-2 on the card. Question mark kicks was 1-2. Remember, with that main event, switching out Krilov and Span that was out. Muniz versus Allen was the main event. You can catch that show live two hours before the prelims coming up this Saturday. But we have a big time card for you because, I mean, listen, in that main event john jones has taken him three years to make the move from light heavyweight up to heavyweight doing it the right way at jackson wink mma the 11 time defending youngest champion in ufc history at light heavyweight moving up to take on like i said 2021's interim heavyweight champ cyril gone he couldn't get it done against his former teammate francis Ngannou, and ganu wins the belt he goes away to the the promised we've land we've already talked about francis more than they did more than they did on the countdown well, show so. it is weird so francis Ngannou is gone this is for the undisputed heavyweight belt and in the co-main event seven-time defending flyweight champ valentina shevchenko challenges a newcomer out of mexico 15 and 3 it's alexa grasso the former strawweight now flyweight contender some really big matchups on this card oh, some yeah. rookie debuts we have 11 total ranked fighters out of the 28 and i know there's something for everybody when there's 14 total fights on a card this is one of those big ones isn't it like this feels like the super bowl this feels like the nba championship like this is one of those huge pay-per-views that everyone can get excited for you mentioned it the goat is back or the goat to many people is back with john jones i'm very interested to see how he looks at the heavyweight limit and that's really the only tarnish you could throw on this whole card because the card itself is phenomenal it's a deep card that has great prospects a lot of name value the only thing that could have made it a little bit better would be if we had john jones versus francis Ngannou for the heavyweight title that would have been one of those all-time great fights that would have had all the hype behind it but i'm still very excited to see what Cyril god's going to offer john jones because i think we can all admit for as good as john jones was in his prime his last two performances haven't necessarily been up to par with what we've seen before and for Cyril Gaon yes he may have got out grappled by Francis Ngannou but he is about as big and as athletic as a heavyweight can get and I think he's going to offer a lot of very interesting questions for the former champ at 205. Amazing matchup and as I said 14 total fights so you got to make sure down below you let us know in the comments section who you have in the fight of the night we throw it on over to our fight of the night screen you're not wrong until Saturday night let us know down below in the comments section. Let us know down below in the comment section who you've got. It's time for the fight of the night with Fight Night Picks. So Fight Night Picks way back when Shavkat Rachmanov made his debut against Alex Oliveira. Rachmanov was an underdog. We both picked Rachmanov to get the win. We told the world about how special this young prospect was, the former M1 Global Welterweight champ. And sure enough, four fights later, four finishes later, he's undefeated in every wins of finish. Rachmanov now taking on the seventh ranked welterweight, Jeff Hands of Steel Neal, a guy who's got it going in his last two fights after a couple of questionable performances exactly. and an overall life transition because he went through some life-altering medical issues. So for Jeff Neal, a big-time opportunity to silence the doubters, to silence the hype train that is for Rachmanov. 
you don't hear from Rachmana very you often, don't. but it's a big time playoff of both gyms, Fortis MMA versus Killcliffe FC. A lot of Killcliffe fighters on this card, but this is an amazing fight at Walterweight. It's kind of logjam right now with the championship just changing hands between Edwards and Usman. And it's one of those incredible fights where there are some question marks around Shavkat Rachmanov. And I know we have been on this guy's case for as long as he's been in the UFC, but you mentioned it. You know what the great thing about Rachmanov has been? His incredible level of dominance. He's not going out there and getting decision wins. We're going to talk about Farid Basharat on this card. And his brother Javid is a very impressive fighter. But the one knock I would say is he hasn't been finishing the guys as of late. Shavkat Rachmanov has been going in there and putting a beating on people. And I feel like his last fight was kind of his introduction to a lot of the MMA fandom. He beat Neil Magny, of course, who is a very popular fighter. A guy who's fought everybody in the top 15. But this is going to be the one that kind of takes him from contender to one of those top tier guys that you really have to worry about. Because if you beat Jeff Neal, nothing but great things are going to happen to your career. And we've seen that. Wonderboy uh, was chief among them. You look at this main event. How could you not pick this as a fight in the night? People might say Gamrot versus Turner. That's an amazing fight. But this main event between guys that know the bonuses. Cyril Gaon, the former interim champ. Yes, he lost to Francis Ngannou early on last year. But since then, picked up a big win in a giant main event. The UFC's foray into France against Taito Ivasa. A lot of question marks around the Cyril Gaon interview that he did with La Suerre. And we'll talk about that in that main event preview. And for John Jones, you talk about question marks. I mean, the guy from legal issues to the weight to everything that always surrounds a John Jones fight. It's just great to see him back in the cage. The two-time interim, or sorry, the one-time interim, two-time full-time UFC light heavyweight champion, 11 title defenses for John Jones. Can you believe it? 11 or 2011, 12 years ago, was the best year of his career. He it's beat wild. Ryan Bader, beat Shogun, who had continued on that role. John Jones, the one loss on his record, the Matt Hamill 12-6 elbows. So amazing to get this fight put together at heavyweight. Who knows what Jones is going to look like on the scale. I can't wait till they face off. I absolutely love this fight. It really is an incredible fight. Like, anytime John Jones fights, I don't really care what your opinion is of him as a person. It feels like a big fight. And that's the one thing that I always like about MMA. Like, when Conor McGregor fights, when even Jorge Masvidal, Nate Diaz, those types of fighters fight, it feels like a big card. Those are cards and fights that you can get excited for. And it's no different with John Jones. I'm very curious to see how he's going to deal with the physicality of a guy like Cyril Gaunt up at heavyweight because Gaunt's not just a big guy. He's a big guy who moves well too so he's going to offer a lot of unique question marks for John Jones but the one thing that has always made John Jones special is his fight IQ and that's what's really going to have to translate up to heavyweight for him to have success. I am so excited for this fight though. Tons and tons to talk about with these fights. Let us know down below in the comment section who you have in the fight of the night. You're not wrong till Saturday night so let us know down below. So 14 total fights on the card. We talked about it earlier. There's some debuting fighters. Esteban Ribovics is coming in off of Dana White's Contender Series contract winning performance. He's finished all 11 of his wins and he's taken on a short notice replacement into the fight. Former two-time PFL million dollar challenger. It is Tajikistan's own Loic Jaguar Paul Rajabov. You heard us talk about him last week if you watched our video so wild that Rajabov gets this chance on short notice Frid Basharat's taking on Damon Blackshear that's an amazing fight it in the is. Bantamweight division you go up and down through this card a lot of big time prospects Cameron Simon is one of them you also have Ian Machado Gary another one of them so some big names all throughout the card and of course the biggest debut of them all the former three-time All-American, Olympic hopeful in 2020. He's undefeated. All of finishes at amateur and at pro. Incredible. 
Debuting on a main card, 3-0 Bo Nickel taking on Jamie Pickett. There's a fight that is buried on this card, though. It's not the main event of the prelims. It's not on the main card. Derek Brunson versus Drakus Duplessis is going to be a great fight. That's a fight that could be a fight of the it's, night. It's Any a bloody nose waiting to happen. Exactly. Brunson is one of these guys who has now fought everybody in the top 15. And he's a great litmus test for any up-and-coming prospect who you think has real promise in the division. And Duplessis might not really be a prospect anymore. He is very well known at this stage of his career. But he's trying to make that next jump up in the division and a win over Derek Brunson is normally how a lot of contenders do that so I think that's a really fun fight that is not getting any credit whatsoever. Some giant fights on this card, some former title challengers, some former champions in the UFC and otherwise we're going to have a lot of fun with this. Again, question mark kicks two hours before the prelims here on the channel. We're going to be live on Saturday. The sidekick is back. I'm not traveling this weekend so things are looking up and onwards to UFC 285. Make sure you tune in for all the content. Really excited about these previews and the predictions that accompany them. Can't wait to get into it. So keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. Last weekend in the UFC, it was kind of like Michael Buffer always used to say, for the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world, you had Narulo Aliv making that debut, Tajikistan on the world stage. They filled what, like a soccer stadium? Did, that was incredible, he had so many people excited about his fight. Now, all of a sudden, a week later, on short notice, Tajikistan gets a second opportunity on the ultimate proving ground. We have the former two-time PFL million-dollar challenger up there for the tournament championships in the Jaguar Paw, Luik Rajabov. And just last week, we said at the end of the video, look up in the corner of this room. We got Luik hanging out there, and we didn't even know that he was going to be making this debut on this short of notice against a guy with a 100% finishing rate out of Argentina, the former Samurai Fight House champ. It is El Gringo Esteban Ribovix and this is a really fun fight because these two guys if you haven't watched the tape on them stylistically match up very very well and a lot of people might be familiar with the man on the left hand side of the screen in Loic Rajabov and he's one of my favorite guys to watch throughout the seasons of the PFL because you talk about a guy with a finishing rate and I know it's not to the 100% like a guy like Ribovix but it's because Rajabov's fought a very high level yes. of competition and even in his last fight, you'll see the asterisks on the screen. It was a short notice catchweight fight. Super lightweight against Zach Zane, who's fought for Ryzen, Contender Series. He's been around. He's fought with Bellator. He's fought with Titan. Zach Zane has been around. Luik Rajabov went in there and said, ah, ah, ah. He goes for the takedown. Zane gets him in that really weird Kimura lock. What does Rajabov do? Flips out of it. Exactly. He ends up in a good position. He gets the finish against Zach Zane. But Rajabov, you know him for the wild looping hooks. You know him for the heavy power. You know him for his power bar. We're going to talk about power bar later we on this will, card. Yes. Marc-Andre Barrio, a guy who stays steady throughout his fights. Rajabov tends to burn hot. And then he goes down a little and bit. That's a bit five, of an issue. Five round fights, not as much. It's been weird. But for Rajabov, all gas, no breaks. You hate to talk about it. But early morning on Sunday, February 26th, is when it was announced that Loic Rajabov would be into this fight. It was Igor Lazarin reporting that over on Twitter. So it has to be mentioned that he's replacing him on about a week's notice. He's replacing Camuela Kirk in this matchup. And that would have been a fun fight too. And it would have been. But the weirdest part about this is... Yet Gilbert Burns coming out on Twitter not that long ago in the last couple of weeks defending Luik Rajabov because it seemed like he'd be one of those veterans that would end up on the Ultimate Fighter like Austin Hubbard, like Brad Katona who's on yeah. the season. 
there are a lot of these uh, Jason Knights, another one of them, that was going to end up on that season. Bruce Roberts? Did McGregor bring in his own guys? Did he not? We don't know. But all of a sudden now, Rajabov goes from Aliv makes that debut, has all the fans behind him, and then that next day or in that 24 hours, Rajabov's in the UFC, and he's getting an opportunity against a very, very hype prospect. And it's a difficult fight for him, but here's the thing about Rajabov. It will be interesting to see how he progresses in the UFC because his strikes are very obvious, but he does have some obvious weaknesses as well. He kind of fights like a more high-volume Dan Henderson to a certain degree. He is very high up with his boxing stance, and he's not a huge kicker. He'll throw a light kick every now and then, and I would say he has become more of a they, kicker as his career They has do progressed. a lot of damage as it's progressing. Exactly have done damage. But he doesn't really go to the body or the head, and he does have to get close to get a lot of his effective damage done. Now, and you brought it up too, when he's able to implement the takedown into his game and get on top of his opponent, he is a very damaging grappler, and he's an intelligent grappler too, because he's not just good in those set positions that we all know, the full guards, the half guards. He's someone who is comfortable with scrambling. It can be comfortable in uncomfortable positions, and I know that might seem like a cliche, but it's a very nice skill to have when you're making your UFC debut, and that's why I am happy that Rashabov doesn't have to take the ultimate fight Route because he's too good to be on the Ultimate Fighter for being honest. Now, a lot I know, of those guys are. Uh, exactly. I know this season they might be doing a new twist or whatever. They're bringing back former fighters, but Rajabov has fought some very good fighters in the past. You would brought it up. His level of competition is very good, but the thing about Rajabov is if you're a high volume fighter with a lot of long range attacks, who has good takedown defense, and I know we're starting to build up a pretty good fighter right now, but there's guys like that who exist out there, and there's a lot of them in the UFC, you can start to gain offense against him at distance, and I will be curious see if Rajabov can continue to progress at the UFC level because he is still in his early 30s but he has been fighting oh. this way for a while now so I'll just be curious to see if he can implement some more of those longer range weapons because I think once he is able to do that that's really going to be able to kind of finish out his skill set and if I was able to use Dana White's wording and my own verbiage I would say Luik Rajabov the kid shop worn because if you look at his fights he hammers the shots and he does tend to tire as fights go on but he fights at a high pace when they start and he really does like to go for the grappling and you look at some of his takedowns he'll do a body lock to then trip he'll pick you up and throw you like he is a bit of an unorthodox takedown he has artist. a good shit i will say this he oh, has been cracked and, by some good shots in the past and, and he has been able to stand up to his fight iq is very good because when he gets hit he then tends to wrestle he's exactly. kind of like a michael chandler in that respect not that he really does fight like chandler but you go down through rajabow's record seven wins by knockout five by submission the only losses on his record are by uh, decision one against house manfield that was in the 2021 pfl finals now that was a good fight too yeah, it was a good fight and rajabov was a heavy favorite to win that if you went by the verdict scorecards the higher ceiling Rajabov was the winner, but if you go by actually using your eyeballs and watching the fight, Manfiel won two of the rounds. He landed and a lot of right hands. If that. you look at it, yeah, Manfiel landed the right hand. There were some takedowns and some scrambles in that fight. There were some big shots by Rajabov as well. And his gas tank actually held up pretty well. And Manfiel, to his credit, was a super underdog to win the season. He was a plus 1,000 at the start of the year. Lost by split decision Alex Martinez, the, the half Canadian. He was able to get that back on that season. He lost to Natan Schultz. Uh, in the PFL finals the season before. He has a draw on his record to Islam Mamedov, who's now, what, 22-2 and two over with Bellator. And in that fight, it was fight. a draw. And then at the end, they went, we're going to a judge's decision as to who moves on in the tournament. And they all decided it was Rajabov and the other loss to Rashid Magomedov. So a good fighter, but you would never pay money to watch that man no, fight. But Rajabov tends to struggle against pure grapplers and guys that can throw a lot of volume on the outside. And everybody in between, apart from that... 
he's able to have a lot of success against. So a lot of fun in these fights. You want to see a big highlight reel win for Rajabov. It's his win uh, in 2021 over Ahmed Aliyev, who had a great record and a great level of competition. He goes into that one. He stalks him, throws an uppercut, and then he goes, what is it? Left hook, right hook. He drops him. He ends up getting the TKO finish in 27 seconds. But I mean, other than that, I can go all through the Manfield fight. I can go through a lot of these fights that Rajabov's had. But I want to say this, Matt, when I hand it off to you, for Esteban Ribovics, the prospect that's out of Uruguay, or sorry, Argentina, first weird thing about this fight, both guys train at Killcliffe FC, and they that both have for a very long time. Second of all, they both fight kind of similarly, and they're both very well-rounded, and the volume aspect might actually go to Ribovics in this one. And I think he might be the more varied striker. I don't think he, he is the more varied striker. The thing about Ribovic is, is it Ribovic? Ribovics. Ribovics. Now, here's the thing about him. I think that as the fight progresses, this is my big thing with Rajabov. If he has a lot of success early, that's what you do worry about his cardio. He's a guy who, if he does grapple a lot, and he's having a lot of success with his own grappling, that's when his own power bar can start, or it can fade as the fight goes on. If Esteban could take advantage of that, you hate to say burn around, because that's not the best strategy, but you get the idea. You can lose the battle and win the war as a result. If Esteban does give up a couple takedowns here or there, he does have great up-the-middle attacks, and that's the one thing about Rebovich, or sorry, that's the one thing about Rajabov that I do worry about. He'll start to reach for takedowns as the fight goes on. He'll go a little bit more for the hips and a little bit less for the shoulders, and I think those are some of the weaknesses that could start to show themselves against the higher levels of competition. Now, Esteban's a guy who will make you pay for some of those mistakes. I just don't know if he's going to be able to do that consistently well, enough throughout the fight, and that's the thing about uh, Rajabov. I'll be very curious to see when he starts to face adversity, because like you said, when he has the clear advantage over an opponent, he's able to out-wrestle them. He's really able to look like a well-rounded fighter, but once he does start to face some of those roadblocks, he does come back down to earth quite a bit. And the weird part about this fight, you look at it for Ribovic's, the level of competition's not there. The finishers are there. Now, are, yeah. again, all wins are by finish. Six of them are in the first round, and if you look at some of these fights, go back to his fight on Dana White's Contender Series. He's taken on Thomas Paul, who's a champion over in uh, Europe, and Paul was an underdog, pretty heavy underdog in that matchup, and out of that one, Right hook drops him, and then he goes into the ground finish. and pound. And it's really good ground and pound in that one. But you go through everything. I mean, they list him as an orthodox fighter. I put switch because he'll switch over to Southpaw and throw that left hook out there. He'll throw the right hook to kind of lead the dance. He throws head kicks. His grappling game is very, very, you know, unpredictable. Again, first round finisher. He's gone to the third round against 21-6 and six, Jose Zaruz, who is actually a decent 21-6. and six. Was, Sometimes yeah. I rag on some of these records when you're on you know some of these regional cards but not that bad he went into a third round in his first fight against a one and two fighter back in 2015 but for a young fighter to train at Kilcliffe FC we continue to see these wrinkles in the game of Esteban Ribovics. he has a speed advantage he tends to take a lot of straight shots too but at the same time what I saw even in the Paul fight and even in some of these fights against much lesser competition he eats a lot of the hooks in his fight that scares me a little bit in a fight against Rajabov. But if you do look at it, Dana White after the fight on Contender Series said, I love your style. You're right up my alley, kid. Wow. Get over here. So he had nothing but nice things like to say. Scorpion from Mortal Kombat. About Ribovix. And the big keys that I had to Ribovix, I put creative takedowns, nice body lock to a trip, which you'll see from Rajabov. And then again, his overhand left walk-off knockout that he had against uh, Aranda. It was kind of reminded me of a Mark Hunt at 155 pounds. So I like everything that I've seen out of Ribovics. I don't have a single negative thing to say other than 
He gets hit, but I mean, so does everyone. They both do. And so does Rajabov. So this, when it does come down to it, is actually a very, very difficult fight to try and offer you a, a good prediction on because they're both very volatile. They're both finishers to the nth degree. And for Rajabov, kind of tough on a week's notice. This is going to sound disrespectful, but this is one of the better pay-per-view, like, card openers between two guys that you may have not heard of. And I understand Rajabov, he's been around for a little bit, so you might be familiar with him. But this is going to be a very high level and a very skilled fight between these two guys. So, I was really curious to see who goes for the first takedown, because both guys do have that in their back pocket. Well, Rajabov's about a 2-1 to favorite in the matchup. We have a look at the topology votes. Really eager to see this, because I have no idea where they're going to be. So, surprised us there to you. I'm going to say name value alone and the fact that he was the yeah. number one overall seed in the PFL tournament in 2021. I'm going to say Rajabov, but he hasn't fought in a little over a year. True. I, I think he'll be the favorite, though. Yeah, I'm going to say over under 75. So you say over in that? I think it'll be over. It's going to be over? It's under. Wow. Oh my gosh! The other way around. 818 total votes. 63% Rebovic, 72% by knockout for the 37% that have Rajabov, 78% by decision. So Rajabov's favored. The fans overwhelmingly have Rebovic and to win by knockout. So... That's kind of crazy. I mean, Rajabov's never been knocked out before. In his fight against Zach Zane, he withstood a little bit of adversity in that Kimura. Wild how he got out of it. He's, he's a guy that powers out of bad positions, which might not work at the highest level. Sometimes it does. Exactly. But this should be an amazing fight. I think we covered it angle to yeah. angle. Tough to offer up a prediction. So what is the pick? I have Rajabov. Because this is the thing. Esteban goes for a lot of the same takedowns Rajabov does. And I just think Rajabov's the slightly better wrestler between these two. So if it does come to the wrestling engagements of the grapple, exchanges i think rajabov will end up on top now will he get into a sticky situation here and there of course he could but just because i do think he's going to be the one in the more dominant of the positions more often that does favor it if it goes to the scorecards and that's why i do have rajabov yeah kenny florian in rajabov's last fight said and i quote he has some trouble pacing himself in fights and uh yeah that's definitely been an issue when he burns really hot but if he doesn't it doesn't go too badly. For me, I'm going to go with Loic Rajabov in this one. I like the hooks. I think they'll overcome the straight shots, which is something I don't say very often on this channel. But I'm going to say it for this fight. I think it's an amazing one. Great to have Rajabov and Ribovic in the UFC. I can't wait for it. Let us know, please, down below in the comments section who you have in this firefight of a matchup at lightweight. Some great fights on this card. Jones versus Gone for the heavyweight title at the top. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. Bantamweights looking for the respective first UFC wins. We have the man in his UFC debut. It's Ferocious Farid Basharat taking on DeMonster. The monster. He was the diamond before. Damon Blackshear, the former CFFC champ. He made it into the UFC on incredibly short notice. Took on Yusuf Salal. Beat him for two rounds. And then in the third round, it was a 10-8 for Yusuf Zalal. It ends up as a draw. Zalal's out of the UFC, but we're hanging on to Blackshear, and I'm really glad we did. I was really, really excited for his UFC debut, because as I told the story before, Blackshear was in the main event of the first MMA show that I ever covered back in Maine. It was NEF 34, home of the brave. He fought Aaron Lacey, who was kind of a hometown guy. He was a home state guy because he was fighting out a brewer. Down in Portland, Blackshear beat him on all three scorecards, 30-27. He's the type of guy that's going to close the distance with some really crisp striking. He's one of the taller, lankier, rangy guys that you're going to find in the Bantamweight division. He goes out there, utilizes wrestling to the nth degree. And if you consider it on Blackshear's record, and I saw people out there in the comment section, they were snickering before his fight was a lol. They said, wow, 
He lost to Chris Moutinho. But go True. through the names on Blackshear's record. He beat Tony Gravely as an amateur. He lost to Tony Gravely as an amateur. He lost to Keith Richardson when Blackshear was 4-0. And Richardson was uh, 16-9. and So experience. a little bit of a tough fight. Oh, yeah, and it was a split decision loss. Lost to Chris Moutinho. Lost to Pat Sabatini by decision. And a loss to Danny Sabatello in a fight for the Titan Bantamweight champion. And the last time I checked, Danny Sabatello just had a title fight over with Bellator against Ralphion Stotts, a high, high-level fighter. So for Blackshear, it's definitely there in terms of the names on his record, in terms of the competition that he's beat as well, because he's got a win by decision over the Canadian and Matteo Vogel, DeAndre Anderson, Josh Smith. That was another really good win. So for Blackshear wave of confidence coming into exactly. this fight out of Jackson Wink MMA, and it's going to be great to have that Jackson Wink camp maybe a little more focused and maybe the shine and all the conversations around John Jones on this card and Demond Blackshear can go in there on a full camp getting ready for his first like real gritty fight week with the UFC taking on a tough tough competitor in the UFC debuting Fred Basharat that's why I'm surprised that they gave Blackshear this opponent because he is a prospect with quite a bit of promise who was given a tough matchup his last time out on short notice Normally, the UFC does you a bit of a favor your next time out. Especially with how he looked in that fight. Yeah. Now, this fight for Reed Basharat, who's a real MFR to deal with across the board. Like, Basharat is an incredible striker, and the brothers don't fight in the exact same way, but there are quite a few similarities between the two of them. They both have that striking to submission ability. They don't necessarily have the wrestling pillar in their game, but when you talk about finishing ability on the feet and on the <laughs> ground, Farid Basharat represents that, and I'll be very curious to see how Blackshear uh, deals with some of the counter-striking of Basharat, because Blackshear's a guy who will move forward, whether it is with his striking or his grappling, and I think he could run into some problems if he does find himself really rushing in because if he does rush in and not set it up behind the jab or at least threaten it up with the takedown Farid Basharat's gonna have a field day striking moving backwards because he is a he's, striker who is at the level where he can move backwards move forward left to right he can find the shots he needs the weird thing about Farid Basharat Javid does it but Farid does it to the nth degree Farid's a guy that can strike very well in the back foot you don't see that a oh, ton yeah. in MMA he's not the type of guy that leaves his chin high he'll exit on angles and his defensive uh, takedown or his takedown defense is really really good in a lot of these fights and for Basharat I can say this about him now in his career he hasn't taken on the same level of competition as Blackshear and they threw the graphic up there ahead of Blackshear's debut into the UFC I added to it and just threw the numbers down to try and make a little bit of sense out of this his combined opponent's record 108 53 and 1 for Blackshear. If you look yeah. at it for Basharat, 36 20 and 2. So, not the same level of competition for both of these guys. Obviously, for Basharat, only three wins by decision. He's got plenty of submissions. The records are kind of similar in that way. Yeah, A lot yeah. of submissions for both guys. Rear naked chokes abound for both guys. If you look at it for Blackshear, he's got, what, five wins by rear naked choke. But for Basharat, even against good fighters, like uh, when he took on Elenin Kumalala over with Octagon in that fight, you can go watch it on YouTube. I mean, he beats that poor man pillar to post, and he's still a newer fighter in MMA. You look at Boshrat's fight against Alain Bagoso, that was one of those quasi-main events. It's still three rounds over Dana White's Contender Series. Boshrat looked really, really good in that fight as well. 4-0 as an amateur, 9-0 as a pro, and he's training at Extreme Couture right now with Marab Doashvili, his brother uh, Javid, Amir Al-Bazi. I mean, those guys are going to get you ready for somebody like Blackshear for sure. And that's the problem that I keep on running into. I don't doubt that Blackshear can have success, but when you break down what both guys really excel at with their skill sets... 
Bashra does set the counter for a lot of what Blackshirt is able to do offensively. Yeah, and I yeah I have a quick look at the odds. Fred Boshrot is a giant favorite in the matchup. Is, Make yeah. his UFC debut. Uh, we're going to have a look at the topology votes. Surprise to us as they are to you. I'm going to say, I mean, if the odds are that way, I'm going to say over under 72.5% Boshrot. I think they'll be over. They're going to be over 92% out of 1,406 total votes have Boshrot to get the win. And I think Damon Blackshear goes out there and beats him in the first two rounds. And Blackshear goes out there and wins a decision in this matchup. I love Farid Boshrat. I think he's a much more dynamic striker. He cuts better angles. He throws power shots from different positions and from different stances as well. But when I look at it, and I look at it defending takedowns against some lesser level wrestlers compared to a guy like Blackshear, I like Blackshear on a full camp. Again, that fight that he had his last time out was on very, very short notice. 10 days notice replacing Christian Quinones against Yusuf Salal, guy who can wrestle a little bit in his own right. And then if you consider it, I mean, you look at the CFC, CFFC Bantamweight title lineage, I'm not saying Blackshear is Aljamain Sterling or Jimmy Rivera. However... Blackshear's beat much better and tougher competition. I think his boxing is competent in a matchup like this, and I think he has a leg up with his wrestling against Freed Basharat. I think he has a leg up with his wrestling. I just think he's going to eat a lot of shots on his way in trying to get to those wrestling positions. I think for that reason, the damage is going to favor Basharat. That's why I do have to pick him. I just think Blackshear's going to eat a lot of shots going for the things that could give him success. Now, could Blackshear end up getting into dominant positions off of some of those entries? Of course he could. I just think the counter-striking of Basharat is going to give Blackshear some troubles on the outside. And that's why I do have Basharat. We're split on the pick in the matchup. I'm going to go with Jackson Winks, uh, Damon Blackshear, Matt going with extreme katoris Farid boshrat let us know down below in the comment section who you have in the matchup some great fights on this card two title fights up the top flyweight and heavyweight gold up for grabs some great ones keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. originally due october the first She's a woman now. She's 40. Jessica Penne, the former champ, over with Invicta. She's going to be taking on Baby Shark, do 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 Tabitha Ricci, and they were originally supposed to square off on fight week. Penne was out, so they rebooked the fight. And now we get it in the new year. We touched on this fight in great detail. So we're going to throw it on back to that preview of the video. We're going to update you with those top topology picks. We're going to make a final pick and prediction on this. And I mean, if you consider it, she was on the Ultimate Fighter Season 20. She was a standout over there. Wasn't able to get it done all the way up near the top. But she does get a win and then automatically vault herself into a fight against Ioanni and Jacek. And that, that, did, that did not go well at all. She had that fight against Jessica Andrade. That fight did not go very well. She fought Danielle Taylor. That fight also did not go very well. And then for a period from 2017 to 2021, Jessica Penne went dark. And we didn't really hear a lot about her. You'd see her doing commentary gigs here and there, but she had USADA complications, injury complications. She steps back into the cage in 2021 and somehow melted my mind and everybody else's. And she beat Lupita Godinez by split decision, which was strange. Then she goes out there and fights Karolina Kovalkiewicz. And it's like, wow... They both fought near the top of the mountain. I mean, that's going to be an interesting fight, right? Nope. Kovalkiewicz decided that she was going to entertain some of the grappling of Penne. And Penne was able to cinch up a quick submission win in the first round. Look amazing. Performance bonus on that card. And for Penne, that's a win that now all of a sudden it didn't look all that great in the moment. But now that Kovalkiewicz just retired, Felice Herrig... It looks a little bit better. So for Penne, her last time out, she takes on a UFC debuting Emily Ducote. 
and had no uh, reason nor rhyme or answer for the forward pressure in the boxing of Dakota. And for Penne, it was kind of a flat performance. This is a weird thing to say, but watching Jessica Penne compete in the year 2022, it'd be like if before UFC 200, instead of doing the Brock Lesnar promo, you see me now! They were like, Tank Abbott's coming back. Like, it really does feel like Jessica Penny is a fighter from a different era. And I know that's weird to say because that era doesn't seem like it was that long ago. We're not talking about the welterweight division back when, like, Josh Koscheck was around. But the women's strawweight division has gone through quite the evolution as of late, especially in the last few years. You sort of have the pre-Wei Lee division and the post-Wei Lee Jessica Andrade division. Because, like you had said, Carolina Kovalkiewicz, Felice Herring, uh, Jessica Penny herself, Ioana, like, most of those fighters at this point have either retired or are not even on the back nine if we're putting it in golf terms like they are putting on the 18th hole they it's, can see the clubhouse it's type steamed stuff. hot dog with mustard time exactly like you're ready to just get home you've been in the sun for four hours ready for a nice nap ripping but, a doink but that's the thing about jessica penne it does feel like she is a fighter from a different era and with her style it still feels like she is that same fighter that we saw all those years ago. Her strengths are still her strengths from back then. Very good at head and arm throws. She's not someone who's going to go for a lot of traditional takedowns. We talk about this a lot with women's MMA. Less kind of D1, D2 backgrounds and collegiate wrestling. A lot more judo tosses that you do see in women's uh, MMA. And with Penne, she does like to go to that head and arm choke. That does help her set up a lot of her own submissions. But that's going to be really interesting to see if she's going to be the one who wants to initiate the grappling with someone like Tabitha Ricci. Because I think of this fight is contested in open space, we're going to get a bit of a stinker, for being honest. Neither one of these fighters are the most heavy-handed of strikers. They don't really have, you know, knockdown or even knockout power on the feet, but once it does get into the grappling exchanges, I do think this will be an entertaining fight because for Penne, that's always been her best path to victory. And Ricci reminds me a lot of a Penne, just a few years younger. So it will be interesting to see if she's able to beat the more mature version of what her own style looks like, that it is a great way for her to crack into the rankings herself. Well, when I look at this fight, you have comparable athletes that they've each fought in the past. And for Ricci, it's actually her last opponent, Pollyanna Viana. Viana is somebody that holds her hands incredibly low, throws a lot of front kicks and teeps up the middle. And then when you go to take her down she goes for head and arms she goes for a lot of guillotines and that's exactly what Vienna did in the fight against Ricci and for Ricci she's kind of a one-two complete reset type of striker in southpaw she does have Muay Thai experience but this is somebody that got into Muay Thai and then overall MMA training about 10 years ago so she's still very young in her Obviously, her young MMA career, she has that Saiza experience from when she went over to Japan to train, which is something that Yulia Stoyarenko also has a lot of experience in, so we'll touch on that with both of them. But for Ricci, she just fought Pollyanna Viana, who fights very similarly to Penne, and other than getting stuck in those guillotines, then getting the takedown, then just kind of wearing on her for minutes on end from top position. That's how Ricci was able to win that fight. And in terms of a height and a reach advantage, very similar for Viana to Ricci. Now for Penne, she will have a four inch height advantage, five inch reach advantage. She had similar metrics when she took on Danielle Taylor, who's just five feet tall with a 60 inch reach. Very now cool. Taylor fights completely differently than Ricci. Taylor's on the outside. She's a volume striker from Orthodox, but in and out pitter patter. That's how Taylor was able to win that fight all those years ago as Penne was kind of 
Well, she probably didn't anticipate she was on her way that out. That was a bad fight years. to rewatch, though. I will say that. That's why we do the work so you guys don't have to. I was watching Danielle Taylor versus Jessica Penne at like 1.30 a.m. this morning, okay? I, it was not the best fight to rewatch. But what I will say, when you do look at it, I mean, listen, for Penne, she trains out of Alliance MMA. There's a lot of grapplers. Her and Angela Hill kind of like locked at the hip in terms of training partners. For Tabitha Ricci, Paragon BJJ, Searover, Ruka Sport in the camp of Mackenzie Dern, who's in the main event but you look at it for Ricci she herself also a black belt in jiu-jitsu she's also black belt in judo so Ricci can go for a lot of different takedowns she likes though the wrestling takedowns a lot of double legs pressuring a lot of single legs because she's not so tall to get the leverage on some of those judo throws so I look at this as Penne is the type of fighter who off the bottom will threaten with a lot of submissions. She does have a very active guard. She will try and transition for a lot of triangles and arm bars. For Ricci, she likes to just keep heavy on top. And that is one of the advantages that she'll have over a lot of the women in this division. But Matt, I know the age difference is what it is. It's almost what? Almost a 40-year-old against almost a 28-year-old. The thing about this one is it's very volatile when it does come to their jiu-jitsu. And I would never downplay somebody like Jessica Penne in a matchup like this. I just think she's not active enough on the bottom for the right purposes. I do agree with you, and I think that's the biggest difference. And I like what you said about how Richie just fought someone who physically is very similar to Jessica Penne. The difference is, Penne is very squirmy on the ground. She will try to move a lot. She's very difficult to hold down, but I do think that's where Tabitha Richie is going to have success in this matchup. I think if Penne's the one off her back, she can move a lot and at least create enough separation to where, okay, she might be able to threaten with a sweep and whatnot. I still think she'll ever be able to accomplish some of those bigger actions on the mat. And if we do get a fight that just ends up being a lot of Tabitha Ricci in that top control. Maybe threatening with a submission once, twice, maybe three times around. Ultimately, probably not being able to finish it just because Penne is good defensively, especially with her own grappling. That I do favor the grappling style of Tabitha Ricci, but this could be a weird fight that's very close on the judges' scorecards. We could see a round one where not a lot happens. Both fighters only land five or six significant strikes, so that's a hard one to judge. We'll Doesn't that sound like fun, folks? Uh, but you know what I mean. You get a round where you don't really know who won. One fighter... Uh, convincingly wins second round, the other fighter convincingly wins the third round, and then we just sort of don't know where the judges' scorecards are going to be in the end. I can see a fight that does end up looking like that, but I still like Tabitha Ricci to go out there and get the fight in the positions that she can excel at, whereas Penne, I think, is just going to sort of take what's given to her in uh, this matchup, and if that's the case, I do like Ricci. Penne struggled with getting the takedowns her last time out against Dakota. She went 0 of 8 on those, but I never really hammer home the stats all that much in some of these shows. I actually will today, but for Penne, she landed 63 of 244 significant strikes her last time out for a 25% average. That's bad, but when you're throwing so much out versus Ricci, who likes to go 1-2, reset, maybe that could kind of help Jessica Penny in this. All right, Matt, so Ricci is riding a wave she of is, success. Yeah. Those last two wins that are on her record over Maria Oliveira and Pauliana Viana. If you look at it for Penny, I mean, a couple of crazy wins. One chintzy one over Godinez, the one a loss to Kovalkiewicz, and then, of course, that loss to Emily Ducote. She got kind of boxed up in that matchup. We have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprise to us, they are to you. I'm going to say over, under 70% Baby Shark. I think they'll be over. I think they're going to be over. They're way over. 1,401 total votes, 91% Ricci. 
and 82% by decision. The topology voters this year one-sided are going wild to one side. Matt, you're making a pick on this one. I know we kind of shaded towards it back in October. Is it still, I'll let the cat out of the bag. Is it still Tabitha Ricci in this one? It's still Baby Shark. This is the thing. I had picked Jasmine Jastavicius last weekend. It was because she held a wrestling advantage. And I'm not here to say Jessica Penny is not a good grappler, but she does rely a lot on her judo takedowns, a lot of that head and arm. And she does play off her back a little bit too much. She suffers from the Lua smolka so for Penne, I just think she's going to give up a lot of time off her back to Ricci. I think this could be a bit of a stale fight because I don't know if Ricci's going to be able to just go out there and get the submission. I think it will be back and forth with some of the grappling, but I do still favor Ricci. It's, in it's one where the underdog really does have a better shot than maybe the fans voting on topology yeah. would say because Penne has some crazy takedowns and she has some really weird and unconventional, you know, ways to get into her submissions. You know, she's training that at Alliance. A lot of those arm bars, traditional. About the Carolina fight traditional uh, things that she's able to go out there and do with the grappling. But for me, I do like Tabitha Ricci. I think she's kind of that new wave with her Muay Thai, with her Jiu-Jitsu. So both of us in this one going with Brazil's Tabitha Ricci to get the win. Some big time fights on this card, including a title fight up a weight class from this one. Shevchenko taking on Grasso. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's get into it. turnaround for the most savage player it's msp cameron simon representing south africa a the first south african fighter that's on this card and b the first south african fighter that represents team cit we're talking about simon and his teammate drikas duplass he was in the middleweight fight on this card against Derek brunson but for simon he's going to be taking on a finisher to the nth degree this man representing houston texas it's monoboy Mana Martinez now training and representing Main Street Boxing and Muay Thai. You know that gym for Crew Bob Perez. You know it for Regis Progray. And now you know it for Mana Martinez. And my goodness, I'm not going to draw comparisons between him and Progray. But Mana Martinez has some good boxing. And Mana Martinez will hit you with some shots that you've seen in all of his fights before. But it's like fighters have never seen him throw a spinning back fist in their life. So for Martinez, some wild fights outside of the UFC. You know him for really, really quick finishes. Oh, yeah. Then he takes a fight against Guido Canetti, that old 43-year-old who's still ticking. And you watch that fight, and Martinez can't really get out of first gear. And the story before that fight was that Martinez had trained for the longest time at a Metro Boomin' Metro Fight Club close to home. And his coach saw Solis passed right before that did, fight. Yeah. So it took Martinez a while to get into that one. He ends up getting the win by split decision over Kennedy. Comes on strong as it goes on. He takes on Ronnie Lawrence. Lawrence dominates him in the wrestling. Dominates him in the striking. The third round happens. Amano Martinez drops him with a spinning back. back fist. And then drops him in a bit of a blitz with a nice right hand. So two knockdowns for Martinez. As that fight went along, he got dropped in that fight multiple times. So it showed a lot of toughness and resolve, even though he lost it by decision. And his last time out, bit of a weird fight in the fact that it's considered a split decision on his record. Because I thought Martinez won two rounds convincingly. Yeah. But he dropped Davis a couple of times in that matchup with another spinning back fist. So for Mono Martinez, I listened to an interview that he did with the All-Star MMA, friend of the show, JHK. And he basically put it in simple terms that... Going to Main Street Boxing Muay Thai is going to give him the opportunity to kind of get back to Mana Martinez. Not thinking about it too much because at different camps that he's been at before this one, he has he's kind of been put more into the box of you got to refine your technique. You got to kind of tame the wildness a little bit. I'm putting it in my own words. But for Martinez, now training with Crew Bob Perez, we saw last weekend, Rafael Alves, did he get his finger bit? I don't know. Charlie bit my finger. 
But for Martinez, I can't wait to see the new improvements out of that camp because I do love to see that for him. And this is a very exciting fighter that people are going to sleep on Martinez just because the new shiny toys, Cameron Simon, and how impressive he looked on Contender say, Series Simon last week. Pretty good. Both good fighters. Uh, the interesting thing about Mono Martinez is you can watch a five-second clip of any single one of his fights and be convinced that one day he will become one of the great fighters of all time because the highs are extremely high. Like you mentioned, the flurries are great. The hand speed is phenomenal along with the power. But the thing is, he does suffer from a pacing issue, and I don't think it's a cardio problem. No, he does. I don't think he, it's a he comes on problem. strong as they go exactly. on. Exactly. It's not. It doesn't have to do with, oh, he's really good in one round and not good in two, and it's inconsistent. It's just... He will. He'll look great for about 45 seconds. And it'll take a bit of time off to kind of reset and find himself. And in between the resets, it's like... Uh, he Joey Votto, the batter, is a good example of this. I just thought of it. Joey Votto, Joey Votto keeps his feet planted the whole entire at-bat. So if you throw high and inside on him, he doesn't move his feet to reset his distance. He keeps his distance what it is, so he doesn't have to relearn it. For Mono Martinez, he'll get his distance, know what it is, but then when he resets, it does take him a little bit of time to actually reset. Now, I do think with the camp change, that will help improve some of those things, and I do think a refinement in his boxing technique will be very helpful in a matchup like this against Cameron Samon, because Samon is one of these top-tier prospects that the UFC is going to try to push. He's 22 years old. He has all the skills in the world. He is one of these guys who the UFC is really get, going to get on board with. So, if Martinez can can spring the big upset over the big prospect, like, this is a huge opportunity and, for Martinez. And for Martinez in that interview that he did with JHK and he said, I quote, got a nice little shiner a couple of weeks out from the fight but that's just from wrestling and an accidental headbutt. So he had a little bit of a black eye, but it is what it is. For Martinez coming into this fight, the camp changed a big thing. For Cameron Simon, you gotta talk about the fights. Former EFC Bantamweight champ. We've seen former EFC guys have success in the UFC. White Kong's one of them. Uh, Jake Hadley. We had Themba Garimbo, who lost AJ yeah. Fletcher recently, former EFC champ. You also have a former EFC double champ in Simon's teammate, Drakus Duplass. He was on this card. Now, the combined opponent's record to this point for Simon, he's 7 0, is 27 19. It's bad. But he started kickboxing at 12. You see that in his game. Now, that's a big parallel with a guy like Duplass, and we'll talk about it in that fight. But he started at Team CIT very, very young. And if you do consider it and you look at the way that he fights, his last fight against Steven Kozlo, who took that fight on what? Like a couple of days Short notice. Kozlo yeah. looked great in the first round. Won the first round. Second round. Started to tire a little bit, but at the same time, giant illegal knee by Cameron Simon in that one. Chris Tyone's like, I'm taking a point. We're going to fight on. Kozlo didn't look great. Kind of rallied back a little. And then in the third round, Simon was able to pull away and get the win. Simon also faced a little bit of adversity against Josh Wang Kim with the volume in the first round. And then he kind of settled in in the second round. Wang Kim slowed down as it went on. And that's when Simon was able to pull up. And if you watch the Simon fights with EFC and when he was on the regional scene, Simon would go out there throw hammers with his hands, oh, but yeah. implement his own wrestling. Now, his defensive wrestling struggled in some fights, but his offensive wrestling is very good, and I'll be eager to see if we see a lot of that wrestling in a matchup against Martinez. I think he will probably go to it just because of how dangerous Martinez is on the feet, but the thing I do like about Simon is he knows when to use the wrestling. So, uh, this is one of those matchups where it will test his fight IQ, which, like you said, wasn't the best uh, showcase of it his last time out with the illegal knee, but he did come on stronger as the fight went on, and that was nice to see from him being a younger fighter but he suffers from something a lot of young NBA players do and it's he's really good offensively but defensively even with his striking he does leave himself a little bit wide open so I don't know Matt read my notes I put flaws uh flows between stances takedown defense equals meh 
Striking defense equals match. He's a lot like Jalen Green for the Houston Rockets. Great offensively, but if you really take into consideration how bad he is defensively, he just kind of breaks even at the end of the day. And for Simon, we do see this from a lot of young fighters. Offensively, they can excel. Defensively, they have to fix those flaws. I will say, though, he has started to make some of those improvements and still only being 22 years of age. I think there is still quite a bit of room to grow because if he is able to really uh, round out his whole entire skill set, fix some of the defensive issues, he's big for the weight class, even though height-wise he, he might not necessarily be listed as it. He is big frame-wise for the weight class, and I do think he'll continue to grow. He has great hand speed, good power, good volume. Like He has all the building blocks you look for when you're trying to find a promising young prospect. It is a tough one, and if you watch Mono Martinez's last fight Dominic Cruz calls him Mana for like half the fight and it's pretty weird but when you do consider it Simon is a pretty big favorite which is kind of a little wild for me because he just he hasn't been proven yet but apparently people like him enough we have a look at the topology votes Matt I think the people are really gonna like him because the topology yeah, voters probably. are wild these days so I'm gonna say over under 80% for the MSP I think it'll be over yeah, they're wild. Uh, 1,306 total votes, 87% Simon, 37% by decision, 48% by knockout. For the 13% that are Martinez, 63% by decision. For me, I'm going to go with Cameron Simon in the matchup, but the red flags are there, man. Like, he, his striking defense can struggle at times. Mono Martinez switches stance a lot and switches levels a lot, and he does a lot of moving. It is effective, but sometimes he gets caught in the mirror of doing all of that, exactly. but not actually striking. So for Simon can capitalize on that. Ronald Martinez, for as many times he got taken down by Ronnie Lawrence, he was like Chumbawamba. He just kept getting back up again. Yeah. So I do like that out of Martinez as well. I will ever so slightly go with Cameron Simon, but if I've ever seen a pop and popcorn volatile fight before at Bantamweight, this is that fight. You mentioned it. I do think the wrestling of Simon is going to be enough of an X factor to where he can at least threaten with it. And I do think the threat of his wrestling will help him open up his own striking that much more. And that's why I do have the South African in this matchup. But this is a really fun fight. This is a fun fight and a tough one to offer up that prediction. But both of us going with the most savage player. Don't necessarily love it. Cameron Simon to get the win. Some big time fights on this card. John Jones is coming back. Taking on Sidogon in the main event. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. The future Ian Machado Gary is one of the hottest prospects in all of MMA and he's going to make his fourth walk to the octagon all on UFC pay-per-view undercards. This guy has talent. They will tell you that. The former Cage Warriors welterweight champ. He's going to be taking on a man with an 89% finish rate. And Team Alpha Male, Song Kanan. And this is a very volatile matchup in oh, the yes. welterweight division because for Machado, Gary, the future, it's now. The pressure, it's there. And for Gary, you knew him for the finishes, you know him for the judo and the boxing that he possesses. And he switched camps like he's really made a nice stable home at Killcliffe FC. He added that middle to the last name, if you catch my drift, after he married Layla Anna Lee earlier last year. But for Ian Machado, Gary, you look at it in the UFC, and I'm not going to say, like, the potential hasn't been realized, but he had a burn burner of a fight where he got tied against Jordan Williams, and he finished him. He had a fight against Darian Weeks where he struck off the back foot and outstruck Weeks, who tried to wrestle him. And then he did the same thing against Gabe Green. Now, he boxed Green's ears in in that one. He dropped him near the end of the fight. Yeah. But for Ian Machado, Gary, I know, like, we like him. MMA fans like him. Joe Rogan definitely likes him because he gets to comment on his fights. But for Gary... I know Williams was a knockout artist. I know Darian Weeks was so well-rounded. And same thing for Gabe Green. Sunkanon, I say he's a finishing artist. Watch the guy fight. 
That's what he does. He walks across the cage, throws massive shots, and he tries to wrestle some of his opponents at the same time, too. And I don't have to just say this. Go watch Song Kanan's fight against Brad Riddell when they had a catchweight fight years ago. And in that fight, Song Kanan's beating Brad Riddell for portions of that fight. And then at the end, Brad lands a body shot, and it's like a glancing left hook. Kanan, like, doubles over, and that's where Brad Riddell goes in and gets the finish. So I love this fight, Matt. Obviously, Sung Kanan's not going to get anybody's respect this fight week, and it's all about Ian Machado, Gary. But I'm here to say, rewatching watching Kanan fights is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. I have a simple breakdown for this fight, and I have a very complicated breakdown for this fight, so I guess I'll get both very quick. I wasn't sold on Ian Gary up until his last fight, and I can openly admit that. If you've watched any of our videos, I was always very critical on him, because again, I just mentioned this with Cameron Simon. He is great offensively, but defensively you do worry about him, especially when he's going to fight a big puncher. And I thought that big puncher was going to be Gabe Green, a guy who's very athletic, can eat a big shot, can wrestle a little bit offensively, and when he gets into the pocket, he throws hammers. And I thought some of the lapses that Ian Gary had defensively were going to get him caught in that fight. Now, did I love the gameplay he had in that fight? You would kind of mentioned it. Not necessarily, because boxing on the back foot against a lot of guys at the top of the division, like, is that going to be a good game plan against Jeff Neal? Probably not. Like, guys in the top 15 are going to figure out some of the flaws in your game that way, but Gary was really impressive with his boxing combinations and, in that fight. And that right cross that he was able to land, he slipped. And it was accurate, right too. That's the thing. Not a lot of wasted movement with Ian Gary. He's not a guy who's going to go out there, throw a lot of big shots, like a prime Vanderlei Silva, and just kind of hope for the best, you know? He is a lot more aim and fire instead of spray and pray, and that's why this fight, I think, could go one way, and it could be very simple. If Saul Kanan meets Ian Gary in the middle of the octagon, I I think Ian Gary's gonna knock him out. I do. I just think he has too much firepower in a fight like that where they go shot for shot. Not that I don't think Song can get his own shots in. I just think Gary's A, the bigger guy naturally, because Ian Gary, to his credit, is as big as a welterweight as you can ever see. He's six foot three, but he's not a thin six three. He's not built like a Neil Magny. He is a more filled out fighter, and he does have great power when he is able to land. I just think if they do get into one of those barn burner type of fights, it does favor Gary tremendously. Now, if Kanan is able to mix in some of his own wrestling, and put those question marks into Gary's mind. I do think it will help him open up with some of his striking, but again, the problem I keep on going back to is, I just think Gary has a little bit more firepower at the end of his shots, and I just worry about Song Kanan getting into one of those one-for-one pitter patterns. It's a fights. weird matchup. If you're trying to build a prospect, you have him fight Jordan Williams, a former middleweight. You have him fight, okay, Darian Weeks, who doesn't have a lot of pro experience, but a lot of amateur experience, and I might be the biggest Darian Weeks supporter out there in the world. And then you have him fight Gabe Green, a really tough fighter. And then you have him kind of step down a bit and fight Son Kanan and Son Kanan again. He's a finisher in the UFC has finish wins over Bobby Nash, Hector Aldana, and Callan Potter. And poor Judo Dan was in the corner watching his boy lose in that one. And he also has a win, does Kanan over Dare Krantz, the former LFA champ. That's a quality win. Lost in the UFC to Alex Morono. Alex Morono's a good fighter. And Max Griffin. He lost to him, but... That was Song Kanan's last fight, and that was back in March of 2021. The co-main event of Derek Brunson, Kevin Holland, was Song Kanan and Max Griffin. So if you say they don't care about co-main events on Fight Night cards, they didn't two years ago. But the point out of this one, Matt, the last win for Song Kanan was that fight with Judo Dan in attendance. That was back in February of 2020. So Song Kanan's going out there looking for his first win in three years. Odd matchmaking. Feels like it favors the prospect, but you do have a very dangerous opponent in the blue corner. Oh, definitely. It's just, I mean, the prime blue corner. It's like when you do a my league at NBA and you're doing scouting. It'll give you the floor and the ceiling for what a lot of prospects will be. The way I look at Ian Gary is his floor is probably Max Griffin. 
I think that's fair to say. Like, they're both good boxers. Ian Gary has way more power, I would say, even though Max Griffin has better volume. They're both good offensive wrestling. I just think Ian Gary's potential far supersedes what Max Griffin's does. And that's why I do think Ian Gary has a lot of the same strengths as Max Griffin, which we're able to so he was able to showcase against Song Kanan. And that's why if Ian Gary didn't fight his last fight against Gabe Green, I'd probably pick Song Kanan in this matchup. But Gary answered a lot of those questions for me in his last fight. Well, Song Kanan now aligning himself with Team Alpha Male, and he's trying to do this, like the monsters. Take that boxing glove and suck the powers because Son Kanan's training with Sage Northcutt for this fight. So Super interesting Sage. stuff there for Son Kanan. He's the heavy underdog. Big favorite is Ian Gary. We have a look at the topology votes. Matt, surprised us there to you. I'm going to say over under a 90% Ian Gary. Probably over. The fans are wild. Yep, yep. they're wild. 1,391 total votes, 95%. Machado Gary, 63% by knockout for the 5% that have Son Kanan to win. 43% by knockout. I have Ian Gary to get the win because, oddly enough, I like his striking off the back foot. I think his boxing combinations are a little bit cleaner. He doesn't waste a lot of energy compared to Son Kanan, yeah. who just... He burns hot, and I mean, he's got a winning record, and he's deserving to be in the UFC, oh, but good for me, I do like Ian Gary in the matchup. You look at the guys that he trains with getting ready for one like this, Brandon Allen, last week's, you know, impromptu main great. event, Kevin Lee, there's so many big fighters, like, at welterweight and at middleweight for Ian Gary to train with at Killcliffe. I love it, so... Like the king of four rounds, Matt, Butterbean, I think Ian Gary goes out there and gets a big win. I can admit this. I don't know what Ian Gary's ceiling is. Like, do you have an idea yet? I don't personally. Like, with Jack Della Maddalena, I felt pretty comfortable after the Rams and me fight. Like, this guy's going to be pretty good. And he's a good fighter. He's well-rounded. He's been around. He's fought a lot of really good fighters. And for Maddalena to fight him the way he did, get taken down, pop back up, and knock him out, I was impressed enough to really think, wow, this guy has a promising future. With Gary, I was really impressed in him based off his last fight against Gabe Green. But even if he beats Song Kanan, you had mentioned this. That's not really going to make me any more impressed than what he was able to do over Gabe Green. So I think if, let's say he goes out there and gets a finish this weekend, then it's time for him to really get that necessary step up in competition for us to really get a good idea as to where he could fall in the division. Both of us going with Ireland's Ian Machado, Gary, to get the win in the matchup. Let us know down below in the comment section who you have some big fights left on this card, including Jeff Neal who's taking on Shavkat Rachmanov. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. banger coming up this weekend with 19 finishes and 23 combined wins we have the canadian power bar representing gatineau quebec canada mark andre barrio fired up. and he's going to be taking on the cuban missile crisis julie marquez and for marquez we were supposed to see him back in november and i'll throw the tweet up there he's supposed to take on duran win duran win fell had an accident and the ufc cut him let that sink it's in tough. they don't care about duran win dc does ufc doesn't now Ron Wynn was forced out of many bouts. And for Julian Marquez, this is a guy that injuries obviously derailed a large portion of his career. And he's only 9-3. and three, And it feels like Julian Marquez has been around. And on everybody's radars, you know, MMA fans, people in the dirty movie business, podcast business. Julian Marquez is that guy. And he's got a positive record in the UFC. And he's beaten names equal to or better than... Makande Barrio. I mean, think about it. Back on Contender Series, he's fighting Phil Haas. He's beating Phil Haas. He cracks him. Then he lands a head kick. Face plants Haas. Big winner. And again, he's had fight of the nights, the performance bonuses. Marquez has been able to do that. And if you look at it for his opponent here out of Quebec, you look at Makande Barrio, former TKO middleweight champ. 
He goes up to light heavyweight. He fights Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada's Adam Hunter, who was supposed to be in the UFC at one point. They have an absolute burn burner. And it's Badio getting on top, landing ground and pound, and ground and pound to the point where Hunter's out at the end of the fight. So big wins for both of these guys. Obviously for Badio in the UFC, if you consider it, I say he's four and five. UFC, real record, three and five with no contest because the win over Oscar Piotto was overturned. But if you do look at it for both of these guys, a lot of finishes between them. And we touched on it in the Ian Gary fight. What's the guy's ceiling? What's the guy's floor? If you look at it just like numbers on a page, you look at it that way, I would say, okay, Marquez at his best is going to grind out wins. He's going to beat some of the better guys. At his worst, he's getting dropped three times in a first round against Gregory Rodriguez. They say three numbers on a page. I can't have four drops for Rodriguez in the first round. And for Marc-Andre Badio, at his best, he's beating Adam Hunter and looking amazing for the second belt. At his worst, he's an overhand right from Chitty and Joe Kwani. It's 16 seconds in, the fight's over. I gotta be honest, I think a lot higher of Badio at this stage of his career than I do Marquez. And I might be wrong for this, but for Marquez, his wins haven't been over the greatest of guys. Now, the Darren Stewart fight I do think is a great win. Fight of the night right there. And it was a great back and forth affair. Like, that's a great fight to go back and watch. I really do recommend it because Stewart may have lost, but he was still a good Darren Stewart last night, if you don't, or that night, not last night. Because he lands great shots against Julia Marquez, really nice boxing Did you go combinations. To the last night? Yeah, maybe. But Marquez was able to weather a big storm and then look good as that fight went on but my issue with Marquez is and that's why I push back a little bit against he could look good against any of the top guys his other two wins are Maki Batolo, who is a talented fighter, but not a varied fighter, not the most well-rounded of fighters out there, and Sam Alvey. That was a burn burner. It I was, think. but Sam Alvey is Sam Alvey. I just think for Marquez, he gets hit far too much, and I think for a lot of his career, his toughness was able to carry him past a lot of adversity, and he was able to eat a lot of big shots and look good as a result. I just worry that that level of durability is still there, and I understand fighting Gregory Rodriguez is one thing. Like, he's a heavy-handed guy who's going to knock out a lot of fighters, but Marquez is Chin was able to keep him into a lot of fights. And I'm not going to tell you Barrio's the biggest puncher by any means, but he can land clean shots on the outside. He's going to damage you with his boxing combinations before he goes to his wrestling. I just think if Marquez isn't able to have success on the outside in this matchup, I definitely don't think wow. he's going to have success on the inside apart from some submission attempts. So I think Marquez is really going to have to show us something a little bit different. Maybe a little bit more kicks like you did show in the Phil Haas fight because he will throw kicks to the head, but there's not a high volume of kicks. And I think that's the issue for him. He's going to have to keep Marc-Andre Barrio at bay in this fight, and I just worry about how he's going to be able to do that. Barrio's one of those guys that he made the move to Southern Florida, training at a Hillcliffe FC, like a lot of fighters in this card, and again, we've already mentioned it, but Brendan Allen and the like in the divisions. I mean, Ung Lung Sung's trained there forever, middleweight champ, or for the longest time over with one championship. so many good fighters for a while. And for Barrio, we saw him really highlight his highs. We saw him go out there, really clinch guys, really wear on their gas tank, kind of fighting the Blagoy Ivanov type a fight where you're just burning guys out and then you're going out there and finishing very very well like his fight against Abu Zaitzer Potato Gate that was Ottman his win over Dolce Lundiambula where he's able to go out there and just kind of keep and weather the storm and keep the pressure his losses I mentioned to Joe Kawani then he had a wild fight and a win over Jordan Wright and then his last time out against Anthony Hernandez I'm not going to sit here and lie I picked Badio to beat Hernandez and I thought okay Badio good takedown defense we've seen it in the UFC we saw it with TKO and sure enough, Alexander Hernandez went out there and made it a wrestling clinic, and Marc-Andre yeah. Barrio looked like 
I don't know, a sturgeon floating down the, the, the St. Lawrence. I'm trying to make Quebec references here. St. John. I could have said a beluga too, but for Badio, he really did struggle in that aspect. And Julian Marquez, likewise, good grappler in his own right. Now, he's since switched camps, and he's training at Factory X, and he's been there for quite some time. And you talk about bigger fighters to get ready for a fight like this. Rob Wilkinson, did he win a million dollars last year with PFL? He did. He did. He trains there. Dustin Jacoby, who strikes on the outside? Jacoby does. And then the best guy that Marquez can train with out of that gym that fights at middleweight is Cody Brundage. And Cody Brundage can be there in that camp and is in that camp, and there's pictures of them on Instagram, that can replicate a style like Badio. So both these guys have really kind of had to rely on their toughness and durability have. more than some other fighters. It definitely does wear down on the power bar, no pun intended. But this is a tough fight to try and make a pick on because for Marquez, heavier-handed, more varied attacks. He's He is definitely more of a finisher. And if you look at it for Badio, he's usually able to withstand a lot of that. Majority of his fights, but against Joe Kwani, who just rushed in there and landed that overhand right, Badio fell like a sack of patat. And then he went in there for the kill, didn't Joe Kwani? Matt, you think the Quebecers are happy with this one? Uh, it all depends on who they're going to pick. All right, slight favorite, Badio. Yes. Slight underdog, Marquez. Topology vote. Surprised us there to you. I'm going to say over-under because one guy's a fan favorite, one guy's not. I think the fans, I'm going to say over-under 65% are going with Julie Marquez. Yeah. I was going to say 60, Marquez. I'm going to say under, though. going to say under? It's over. Look at that. 1,388 total votes. 67% Marquez. 19% by decision. 18% by submission. 56% by knockout. For the 33% that have Badio, 57% by decision. 26% by knockout if my eyes are doing the job. So, Matt, when you look at this fight... Slightly the favorite is Badio, but the fans have Marquez fairly overwhelmingly. And as the underdog, too, I feel like I've spent half this video ranking on Julian Marquez, but I do think he's the more damaging of the two. And I think he's going to be able to keep this fight on the feet for more than half the round, let's say. So if he's able to damage Badio for at least half the round, and let's say he spends the other bit on his back, I think he'll be able to threaten the submissions a little bit, which will make it uncomfortable for Badio in the top position. I don't think he's going to be able to consistently outgrapple Badio, I will admit that. But I do think Marquez is the more damaging of the two on the feet. And for that reason, I do have him in the matchup. Now, I gotta be honest, I don't love Julian Marquez moving forward against a lot of the top guys in this division. I do believe those stylists this is a decent matchup for him and it's a slight underdog I don't mind picking him well and that's a weird thing like numbers on a page you obviously had Marquez struggling with the takedowns against Darren Stewart but he finished him he struggled against Manzel Alessio DiCirico is no longer in the UFC he retired if I'm not mistaken yeah. and Maki Patolo but the Patolo fight was off a really long layoff he was getting his legs back into it it was it's a tough one for me I like the durability. I like the lasting ability of a guy like Marc-Andre Berrio. So I'm going to go with Quebec's own. You're going to go with the man that's represented a multitude of cities, but this time training out of Colorado. In Julian Marquez, really eager to hear from you folks down below in the comment section on this one. Very volatile matchup oh, yeah. in the middleweight division. Brunson's taking on, holy smoke, Streakus Duplessis. That's also in this card. There's some great fights in and around these divisions. You're not going to want to miss them. Keep them locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. From a title shot 
to the prelims. Viviani Arujo is looking to reset her career. She's going to be jumping all the way up from the top to now facing the number 15 contender in the women's flyweight division in Amanda Hibas. And for Hibas, she was supposed to compete back in December. She was supposed to take on Tracy Cortez. And on, what was it, fight day or the day before the fight, the fight yeah. fell out. Hibas was in attendance. And ultimately, they managed this fight and throw it together. So now Hibas has a great opportunity to jump the queue and get closer up to that title that for now, for now, before Saturday, Valentina Shevchenko has it, but she's going to be defending it against Alexa Grasso. And that's where you have to talk about it. Because Matt, back last year, Viviane Araujo, in October, she took on Alexa Grasso. Now, were the title connotations? Manoff Yaro was floating out there. It didn't seem like there was at the time. You didn't have the rise of Blanchfield, but Blanchfield was on the way up. But if Entourage you look at that course. one, a poster fight, Grasso Arujo. And it was a really good fight. It was a really competitive fight as well. Now, numbers on a page, 50-45 and 249-46s. But we even said going into that one, A, wouldn't be surprised if it ended that way. And B, after the fight, we said, well, a lot of those rounds could have gone either way. And that was the thing with the scoring. They really could have. It was either 2-2 going into the fifth or 3-1 for Grasso. So it could really vary on the scoring. But the thing that I liked out of Viviani Araujo in that matchup and going back and watching it was, okay, always loses second rounds. Did she lose the second round against Grasso? Yeah, she did. Always loses second rounds. But she didn't just fall off a cliff with everything. Her output stayed consistent, second round apart. But first round, third round, fourth round, fifth round, Araujo had really good accuracy. Now, she did struggle with some of the volume on the outside from somebody like Grasso. But apart from that, Araujo fought a pretty darn good fight. The weird thing is they're going to bill her as a finisher. Even though her last fight, seven fights have been by decision. But she did have that crazy knockout win exactly. in her debut against Talita Bernardo, who has heated up of late. Viviani Araujo is the OG Ananobi of the women's flyweight division. And let me explain to you why. OG Ananobi's a great basketball player. Like, he's a really good three-point shooter. He's a really good defender. But he's kind of mechanical. Like, when he dribbles the basketball, he has a dribble package, but he just, like, goes between the legs, behind his back, between the legs. Like, that's not being fluid with your dribbling like a guy like Stephen Curry who can just put together moves as he thinks about it. That's my problem with Viviani in a lot of her career. She is a great striker technique-wise. She is even decent defensively, but... She tends to throw very similar combinations constantly, and everything she does is very consistent, but it is somewhat predictable, and that's why we have seen fighters who can fight on the outside who either have a ton of experience or some of those longer-range weapons, like, of course, Alexa Grasso possesses. They have been able to have success against a fighter like Araujo, and it has been a bit of a curiosity because I always thought it was a shame that Howney Barcellos wasn't about four years younger, you know? He's a great fighter. He's got all the skills. He just came to the UFC when he was, like, in his mid-30s, and it sucks that we missed out on him in his physical prime. And for Araujo, I feel a little bit the same way. She's 36 years not old now. Not a shopworn, though. Not a shopworn. That is a good point. But still, not a fighter that you would say is in her physical prime. Now, not a lot of huge punchers in this division. I would say she is still a big puncher, even though you bring it up. Not necessarily the biggest finisher of all time. They are going to promote that wild finish uh, quite a bit. But... I do like the overall striking of Araujo. And the thing about Hibos, if you do want to bring up a weakness, is her defensive striking is quite poor. When she does throw a lot of her own combinations, it's with her hands down. And the thing about Hibos is, what she likes to do is throw a body kick. And her body kicks are great. She is a great kicker. But 
She doesn't kick with her hands up. She doesn't kick all the time off a combination like a Robert Whitaker. She will throw naked kicks to the leg and to the body, and she can be countered with big punches off of that. And I could see a world where He Boss is throwing a lot of leg kicks, gets very complacent with her placement of those kicks, and then all of a sudden, Araujo is able to land a big right hand over the top and hurt her. Because even in the uh, Vita Jandihova fight, she got hurt in that fight too by a jab. She got dropped in that fight, and then she moved back up to flyweight. Now, He Boss has UFC experience at flyweight. She did fight Van Zant was there against Paige Van Zant. that was a flyweight fight and she was able to go out there and get the win in that one and if you go down through he bosses overall record she fought Pauliana Viana in a jungle fight strawweight championship where Viana went out there and put it down that's yeah. a really really fun fight to go back and watch obviously he boss has that UFC debut she finishes Emily Whitmire then she beats Mackenzie Dern that surprised a lot of people she fought Randa Marcos people might go ho-hum Randa Marcos you win one you lose one 30-26 and two 30-25s. He-Boss was all over she that one. Good. And if you do look at it for both of these women, you might go, okay, Aruja's a puncher. She doesn't really grapple. She's not really that. She's not really this. 90% takedown defense in the OC, but the only people that have really gone for the takedown against her, Montana De La Rosa went one of six on her takedown attempts, and Andrea Lee went one of two. So that's it. Not that, big wrestlers. That either. 90% is nice. But it has to be explained to go through it. He boss could go out there, try and mix it up that way. He boss again, I do this because she kind of she ducks in that pocket, she gets a real mean scrunch to her face, and then she starts. It's throwing. like John Lineker, but without the crazy power on the other but, end. But when she does it, if you look at her fight when she took on Marina Rodriguez, she gets cracked, and it's one of the weirdest non-stoppages we've ever seen. Herb she Dean knocked out twice. It, it's kind of like the Kai Care France fight against Cody Garbrandt. Herb runs in there. And then he's right there, like about to touch him, but he doesn't. And then Kai lands another shot, and that's the end of the fight. Same thing, only he did kind of get in there. And then he, Rodriguez walks away, and he's like, no, the fight's still going. And she has to go back in and finish her again. She did. So Hebus beats Jandy Doba, and then her last time out, she moves up to flyweight. She's unranked, and she fights the number one contender in Caitlin Chukagian. Made a good account of herself, I thought, too. Fight of the night, and Hebus rallies in the third round and wins it against Chukagian. So a good thing to see from Hebus. That fight against Chukagian was some time ago now, so it was early on last year. For Aruja, her last fight against Alexa Grasso, like I said, back in October. So when you do consider this fight all said and done, both women, very adept at striking. Hebos for this one, training at Academy of Hebos, not an American top team. Frau Rujau, Serato MMA. Vicente Luque is out of that gym. Coach Serato as well. You have a look at the odds. Slight favorite is Hebos. Slight underdog is Aruzhao. We have a look at the fan vote on Topology, Matt. The fans are wild. They're all going to pick Hebos. I'm going to say over under 70% Hebos. I think it'll be under. I do. And it's over because they're wild. 1,414 total votes, 76% he boss, 85% by decision. For the 24% that I've outrouge out, 77% by decision. I say under because I think this is a very close fight. Now, I will be honest, I still favor Amanda Hebos in the matchup, and that is my overall prediction, but I see this as like a 55-45 kind of a matchup because I don't know if Hebos is going to be able to hurt Araujo. I think she can outstrike her on the outside. I think she can implement some of her kicks, have good volume, so I'm with the takedown, and that's why I pick her in this fight, but it's a dangerous fight, and I was going to come in here and say, oh, Araujo is a finisher, and you are right. She isn't necessarily a finisher, but 
With Heapos showing the susceptibility to getting dropped in the past, if Vina can drop you with a jab, Arauzhou can knock you out with an overhand. So I favor Heapos, but I admit it's a very dangerous fight for him. You know what? If Vina brought in like Trevor Peak to teach her striking, Vina could be the next champion at Strawberry. That overhand hammer fist is one of the more lethal <laughs> strikes you'll ever see. We have a look at this matchup. For me, I ever so slightly have Amanda Heapos in the matchup. I think the varied attack can bring her the victory. But folks, this is very, very close oh, and very yeah. volatile. So make a pick at your own discretion. It's a really tough read on this one. Some big time fights, Matt, on this card. The GOAT, John Jones. He's taking on Sittlegon in the main event for the heavyweight title. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. Derek Brunson, Blonde Brunson, said before his UFC 271 title eliminator against Jared Cannonier that he had two fights left. And after losing by second round TKO in that matchup, and after a year away, he's going to be back to take on the up-and-comer, the former EFC welterweight middleweight champ, the former welterweight champ with KSW, still knocks Drikus Duplessis, representing South Africa. He represents Team CIT. His teammate, the much younger Cameron Simon, is also featured on this card. And for Duplessis, I mean, the list goes on and on and on about all the accolades. His last loss was in 2018 to the champ, or he became the champ, and he was the champ before that. Robocop, Roberto Soldich, won championships now own. Very but since then, fighter. he's won six fights in a row, five of those six by finish. In the UFC, it started with Maluco Perez, who's going to box on that, what is it, Game Bread fight card? Roy Jones Jr. versus Anthony Showtime Pettis. Uh, still Knox was able to beat Trevin Giles. He was able to beat Brad Tavares in an all-time slosher. And then his last time out against Darren Till, he submitted him with one of the wildest performances you've ever seen. And that's the fun part. Both guys fought Darren Till in the past, but go ahead. The Darren Till fight between him and Drakus Duplessis is one of the weirdest fights you will ever watch in your whole entire life. Because, Turn the commentary off if you're going to watch it. But, like, they both gain stock, but also kind of lose it in the fight. Like, that's the thing. Drakus Duplessis rallies late and gets a finish, so you probably think, oh, he must have looked really impressive in the fight. But it's kind of like that Anakin Skywalker meme where it's like, he looked impressive in the fight, right? He looked impressed. Like, Darren Till teed off on him with a bunch of crazy counter Marcus shots. Perez tees off on him. And like, he, he shells up as he does in every and fight. I brought another Star Wars character into every Trika Stoop. It's like Jar Jar Binks. Like, he doesn't do anything right, but he still somehow wins and looks really impressive. Now, the Brad Tavares fight was starting to follow that same script, but Trika Stuplessy was able to tag him with some really big shots later on in that fight. And that's the one thing about Duplessy that is very commendable. For being a big power puncher, he is able to carry his power very so, late. And another Another thing for Drake is Duplessis, they're always going to talk about the... Oh, yeah. He's he's a heavy, heavy breather, but he's like a Nicholas Dalby. It starts early, it carries throughout the fight. He's far better than Nicholas Dalby, though, But it, it's still the same type of breathing technique. But for Drake is Duplessis, numbers on a page, stats for both these guys. For Duplessis, let's talk about it. 33-0 in kickboxing, he's got 30 knockouts. He started judo from 5 to 10, wrestled from 12 to 14... And in K1, he started at 15, and he became the WAKO world champ at 18. Kickboxing is his background. When he's a better wrestler than his opponent, he'll wrestle like he did in his Darren Till fight, and he was able to go out there and get the finish. It's more athleticism, though, than, like, Daniel Cormier oh, technique. Oh, and, and it is. And if you look at Duplessis and just his two losses, 
So Duplessis is 4-0 and 20 years old against 32-year-old Gareth McLennan in a, K or in a KSW, in an EFC title fight. And the announcers are like, Gareth, he's the best fighter on the continent. And yeah, that night he was. Drikas goes in there, rushes for a lot of his strikes, fights in a somewhat similar manner to what he fights like now. But McLennan was able to go out there and take him down, take him down, try and threaten with the takedown. Drikas did the same thing. Drikas on every takedown entry threatens with a submission, yeah. so it backs off McLennan. But as the fight goes on, McLennan has more and more success. He submits Drikas Duplessis. And in the second Roberto Soldich fight, first fight, Drikas wipes his face off the planet of the earth. But in the second fight, it was Soldich going out there and doing the exact we same did a thing. trilogy. Second round, I mean, Soldich, round two, I mean, he was able to hit him hard. Third round, wobbles him, lands the left hand, and knocks him out. But when you look at it overall, Drikas has all these accolades in kickboxing. Derek Brunson, blonde Brunson, Matt. I mean, he was a D2 All-American multiple times over. And for Brunson... He used his wrestling well when he came into the UFC. You think about the Chris Lieben fight. You think about the win that he had over Lorenz Larkin. Wrestled a ton. And then all of a sudden, he vaporized guys in the first round. Ed Herman, Sam Alvey, Carnero, and Uriah Hall. No wrestling at all. I don't know if this is a thing in hockey, but like Vince Carter, for instance, was a superstar when he was in his prime, right? He was able to do everything on a team. But as he got older, his role would get diminished, and he had to more, become more of a specialized player. Become more of a 3 and D guy than just really a 3 guy because he didn't really have his athleticism. Derek Brunson has regressed in some areas of his game, and I think that's fair to say. He doesn't still have the same confidence in his own striking to just go in there, bum rush guys like he like once he did. Like he did on the, that knockout. Exactly. And, like, we even saw that at the start of the Robert Whitaker fight, because, hey, he was able to get away with that. Hey. Robert Whitaker walked backwards, hit him with a left hook, and knocked him out. Now, fight of the night. It was, oh, a wild two minutes for as long as it is, but... We have seen the limitations of Derek Brunson striking against guys at the highest level. And to his credit, he was able to figure that out, be self-aware enough to then go into his wrestling. And that's why there's a little part of my mind that looks at this fight very similar as the Edmund Shabazian fight that Derek Brunson had. His opponent has all the hype, has a lot of promise, has looked very good up until this point. Maybe has shown a weakness here or there. And Derek Brunson puts on the wrestling so, shoes and is, is, yeah, and is able to have a good performance. This is the only issue I do have with Derek Brunson at this stage of his career. I think he can have success with the wrestling. I just don't know where his chin is at this point. He's never been the most durable guy. And I know Jared Cannonier is a massive puncher, but I think it's fair to say... It's not like Cannonier knocked him out with an overhand no, right. I... He hits him with a back fist as he's walking backwards and then knocks him out later on. Now, the elbows are vicious that he lands on the ground, but the initial shots that have Derek Brunson hurt are not big-time shots by any means. That's why I think if Duplessis gets him hurt, Duplessis burns pretty hot on a slow wow. day, so if he gets him hurt, I easily see a finish after Brunson, too. I mean, you watch that first round. Brunson is all over him with the takedowns. He drops him with okay. a short, what it was, a short right hand that he drops him with in close then he gets right into mount and then the round's over and Brunson in the second round slowed down a bit Cannoneer sped up he's landing the elbows he landed the tough shot but for me Brunson from 2019 to 2021 went y'all must have forgot and I talked about the wrestling that he had against uh who was it Chris Lieben and Lorenz Larkin but from 2019 to 2021 co-main event against Elias Theodoru beats him then he takes on Ian Heinish, main card UFC 241, beats him. Then he takes on uh, Shabazian, main event of a fight night, beats him. Then he goes out there and he takes on Kevin Holland, main event, beats him. Then he takes on prominent in all those. Then he takes on Darren Till in a main event and beats him. And for Derek Brunson, main event, co-main event, and then the fight that was on a main card of a pay-per-view. If you look at that and those five fights, all five wins, 19 takedowns in five fights, and Derek Brunson... 
wrestling again, having success. And if you look at it in the fights that he had against Adesanya and the other loss against Jacare, the rematch, he wasn't able to get it going that way. But the weird one is that doesn't fit my mold is his fight against Cannoneer where he goes, what, two of nine on takedown attempts, but he's all over the action until he starts to slow down a little bit and get clipped. And that's what you worry about with Brunson. When he gets hurt, he doesn't recover all that well after he initially gets hurt. And again, Duplessy might not be the most technical striker in the world. He might leave himself open to get taken down because he does rush forward. But if he hurts Brunson, the avalanche that ensues after he gets him hurt is probably going to be good enough to get him finished. But again, Derek Brunson's been in 17 of these fights where it's, hey, you're the big name. This guy has a lot to gain off beating you. But Brunson has been able to turn back a lot of those guys. Just when Brunson fights other guys were in the top five, top ten, that's when he's Struggle. Yeah, and I was reading the book on the plane there this weekend, Fighter's Mind, the Sam Sheridan book, and Greg Jackson talks about you don't want to have all the peaks and valleys, you want to fight consistently. So if you hurt a guy, then you start picking your shots, you don't get too wild. Drikas Duplass, he takes that and but just rips against it Against Brunson, though, just go for it. Like, Brunson isn't Michael Bisping. You're not going to blow your load trying to get him out of there, and then him just piece you apart afterwards because he has superior cardio. Brunson, A, doesn't have great cardio to begin with at this stage of his career. He's almost 40. Like, that's what we have to remember. He's that, a man. that run was a long time ago. He fought Robert Whitaker in 2016. So that run was pre-2016. So like, And then he went on another run from 2019 know, to 2021. But a lot of those guys in the 2019 to 2021 were those up-and-coming prospects who still had a lot to prove. Every time he did fight the upper echelon guy, that's when he would struggle. Like, Jacques Array wasn't even in his prime the second time they fought. He knocked him out with a head kick. That's what I worry about with Preston. Just, I think he has all the skills to win this fight. I just don't know if he has the durability to match. Duplessis he is a big favorite in the matchup is, again. Yeah. Brunson hasn't fought in over a year. He's blonde Brunson. If you go back and check his Twitter. Killcliffe FC for the longest time training there. We have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprise to us there, to you. Now, the young South African fighter in Cameron Simon had a big fan vote for him and he looked good very recently. Duplass, he had a wild fight in his last time out. I think the fans are going to have over under 70% Duplass. I think it'll be over. Over? And it's over. So it's 1,524 total votes, 77% Duplass, 72% by knockout. For the 23% that have Brunson, 61% by decision. So, fans majority have Duplessis. Majority have him to win by knockout. It happened in Brunson's last fight. But, again, we've seen Brunson fight guys like this in the past and just kind of wear on them and beat them. I have a far too accurate prediction that I'll give my actual one. I think Duplessis is going to knock out Derek Brunson with Travis Brown elbows up against the cage in this fight. I think Brunson is going to have to go for quite a few takedowns in the fight because at distance, I do favor Duplessis quite a bit at this stage of his career. When Brunson was more in his prime athletically, he could get that kind of low shuffling stance, threaten with a lot of the overhands, and then go for the takedown afterwards. He is a little bit more takedown heavy now with his style. So again, if he is able to get the takedown uh, successfully, get his ground and pound off, that's thing about Brunson. He does have great ground pound from the top position. He's not a wrestler who's just going to wait out, not really do anything. He's going to try to hurt you with a lot of his punches. So I think Brunson has a great opportunity to hit as the underdog. I just think Duplessis with his overall striking ability, he's very heavy-handed at different ranges. He doesn't just need the long range to get knockouts. He can hurt guys up close. He can hurt guys in the middle range too. And that's why I have Drakus in this fight. Duplessis with his fight IQ when he gets hit, and he gets hit in a lot of his fights, yeah. what does Duplessis do? He wrestles and he leaves his head out. And that's where Brunson, if Brunson's able to hurt Duplessis, Duplessis in a world of hurt in that matchup. For me, I'm ever so slightly going with Duplessis. But the thing that scares me is, what does he do all the time? At distance, but if he gets backed up. 
really high shelled-up guard with his head back and his hands up, completely exposing his lower body. UFC stats are going to say 50% takedown defense for Duplessis. Brad Tavares went 0 of 1. Yeah. Darren Till went 1 of 1. There's your 50%. They're the only two that Darren tried. Darren Till's not some great wrestler by any And it's games. 1 of 2. So for me, I have Duplessis ever so slightly. I think the power can take him through in a matchup like this. But again, Derek Brunson, three-time All-American at UNC Pembroke. And we've seen that in fights in the past and when he went on his last run. So I don't know if this will truly be Blonde Brunson's last fight. As he suggested before his last fight, he only had two left. It was going to be beat Cannoneer, beat Adesanya, See you later, oh, alligator. So for both of us, Matt, going still not streak is Duplessis. Great fight, though. Great fight in the middleweight division. Some great fights on this card. John Jones taking on Sidogon in the main event. Can't wait for it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, and as we always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. In 2016, Cody Garbrandt was on top of the world. He was picking up three straight first-round knockouts that year. On the way to facing 22 and 1 Bantamweight GOAT Dominic Cruz, and he was able to go out there, get the win. He looked amazing in the fight, dropped Cruz a couple of times, gets the belt. It's emotional. And after that fight, Matt, everyone in Northern California, at least every guy, wanted to have a flaming diamond on their neck as a tattoo with the word self-made because Cody Garbrandt, he did that and he got to the top of the mountain. And since then, He's 1-5 with four knockout losses, two of them for the title. And Garbrandt now taking on Trevin Jones. It's weird because you want to talk high highs. Cody Garbrandt beats the greatest of all time. Like it's written in stone. He's this amazing young champ. He's undefeated. And now all of a sudden he's the wheels are off. And if you look at it for Trevin Jones, his crowning achievement was he won the vacant PXC bandweight belt a long time ago. And he's 13 and 8, or sorry, 13 and 9 with an old contest. But this is what I have to say about Trevin Jones. He came into the UFC, and I had no idea how much success he was going to have. His no contest due to the weed, he knocked out Timur Valiev, who was a giant favorite and a heck of a fighter. And then his next time out, he goes out and gets another finish over Mario Bautista, a big up and comer. And since then, Trevin Jones. I, like hasn't looked like the same fighter and kind of looked more like the fighter that we saw in the regional scene, although we haven't even seen Trevin grapple in these three fights. Bit this is why I favor Cody Garbrandt heavily in this matchup, even though that's a wild thing to say at this stage of his career. But let me explain myself, please. Cody Garbrandt gets emotional and might fight in a chaotic way, right? Brawl when he probably shouldn't because we know how good his boxing technique is when he really does stick to his technique and to his boxing. But even when Cody Garbrandt fights at his worst, He's still having success against some of the better fighters in the division. That's the thing. And I know the weight cut down to 125 does worry me. We'll see what the overall uh, lasting conditions are of that. Because I do worry about a guy moving up and down in weight at this stage of his career. And 10 pounds might not seem a lot when you're dealing with a guy at like 205 in heavyweight. But you saw Dillashaw when he went down to 125. Exactly. Like 10 pounds when you weigh 125 and 135 pounds is quite a bit of your body weight. So I do have some question marks about where Cody Garbrandt's durability is going to be. And that's always been a question mark for him but even Cody Garbrandt fighting in that crazy emotional way is going to land pretty good power shots have really good hand speed and be open for big power shots Trevin Jones has a lot of those same question marks and say hey what version of him are we going to get but the differences in his versions are night and day the differences are he'll either throw volume and have really good power and slip shots and have good head movement or 
He'll stand in a mirror and not do very much of anything. And if we get that version of Trevin Jones, we can see Cody Garbrandt go in there, throw a couple of flurries, and get him out of there kind of fast, to be honest with you. Because I... these are two fighters who have two different modes. The difference is, though, Cody Garbrandt's bad mode gets him hit more often. It might accentuate some of his weaknesses. But all of those positives are still there. Whereas with Trevin Jones, he just doesn't even show his positives when he's not fighting like, at his best. Like, Jones against, uh, say, Yakub Kokrakmanov. Don't know why he's not in the UFC anymore. But in that fight, landed 12 significant strikes. Against Howie Barcellos, he got dropped, and he landed 11 significant just strikes. He just backed up the whole He time. fought Javid Basharov, fought on the back foot. Now, counter-striking's worked for Trevin Jones in the past, but it didn't work for him against a guy like Javid Basharov, who's just too well-rounded and has more of a varied attack than some of those lower-level fighters that you're going to find Bantamweight. So for me, when I look at Trevin Jones, it's does his counter striking work out like it did against Valiev, where he stepped into the shot and he was able to land as Valiev was coming in and rock him. Marcellus is able to do that in the fight against Valiev. Is he able to go out there and land a good shot like he did against Mario Bautista? Is he able to turn maybe a takedown attempt out of a guy like Garbrandt, who's always had those wrestling shoes and it used to be accentuated on his way up though? through the UFC? We just don't. I'm see not going it, there. I, but could he do something like that? And then it initiates his own grappling because to the credit of a guy like Trevin Jones, he has good jujitsu. We've seen him compete in jujitsu tournaments. He trains at a Drysdale BJJ in Vegas, but for this camp training at a Fortis MMA as well. Or do we see him kind of wait in the mirror? Now for Cody Garbrandt, one net negative on his entire career is he's a boxer and not a kickboxer. And he doesn't throw a lot of leg kicks. Remember when he went to Thailand though before the second TJ fight started blasting body kicks and still got knocked out? I did. Now for Garbrandt, the camp change in this one is, and I went back about 50 weeks, 50 weeks, March 8, 2022. I found one picture, the first, where he's with Eric Nixick. He's been at Extreme Couture for a really long time getting ready for this fight. And the guys he's training with are Dan Ige, Timur Hasgriev, and Timur Valiev. So good guys to get ready for a fight like this. But the main coach, and I put it for his gym in the graphics. So people are going to go, well, that's not his gym. The main coach that I've seen in the most amount of these pictures. Yes, you're right. does he have? Well, he always has the left one. I know. But he friggin' hates the right one. And I was watching the fights on the weekend, sitting there in the stands, watching the Canadians game with my wife. And I said, hey... Look at this guy. He hates right-handed sleeves. It's Black Cobra Striking Systems, Dewey Cooper. So, a very technical boxing coach to work with Nolov Cody Garbrandt. Hopefully, a little bit of that rubs off on a mat. In this matchup, I can break down the Garbrandt fights, the wins, Takeo Mitsugaki to get a title shot, and then win off of that. Or the losses, the Dillashaw fights, the fight against Kai France where he could drop multiple times. Or his fight against Rob Font that takes down his overall net striking skills and numbers in the OC because he got heavily outstruck in that fight. Although, he had some positives in it, but he got heavily outstruck at distance and he couldn't get past that pawing jab of Rob Font and then the one-two that was off the jab. So for Garbrandt, if the power's there, if the speed's there, if the volume's there to the boxing, he can definitely get the win. For Trevin Jones, he's got the power and you always have to worry about it. I don't think Cody Garbrandt's going to be in the top 15 at Bantamweight anymore. I just think there's too many good fighters in the division, and I do think his time has passed as being one of the top-tier guys, but I still think at this stage of his career, he is still ranked higher than a guy like Trevin Jones, and I would expect Garbrandt, if he is able to get this win, to go back out there and get another big name on his resume. He probably won't fight like a Chito Vera or anyone in the top of the division, but anybody in the back half of the 15 or who's looking for like a big retirement fight, I think Cody Garbrandt's still a big enough name as a brand to kind of throw in there and still get big fights if he can beat Trevin Jones. Well, We'll see if Trevin Jones is able to go out there and do what Dillashaw did twice and Munoz did. It's going to be tough when you're southpaw to land, uh, you know, that duck 
right hook. So we'll see if that happens from Trevin Jones. The odds ever so slightly in Cody Garbrandt's favor. The fan vote on this one, again, sloppy looking five on in, but I'm going to say over under 70% Cody Garbrandt, even though he's a slight favorite. I think it'll be over. I think it's going to be over. It's under. under wow. wow, the fans surprising us. 1,379 total votes, 65% Garbrandt, 67% by knockout. For the 35% that don't know how good Trevin Jones is a grappler, 82% by knockout, just going off recent memory. And if you look at that Kai Care France fight, he faints, then he goes for the jab, then he lands the overhand right. That's the final move there. Kai, Kai Care France is pretty sick, though, as a striker. Against Garbrandt, I guess that's the first knockdown. The second one, he's able to go in there with a lunging right hook. But for me, I have Cody Garbrandt with the variety and the volume that he throws on the feet. Trevin Jones, watch out for his grappling, watch out for his power. But I'm going to ever so slightly edge Garbrandt here. Yeah, I think Garbrandt's time at the top of the division is pretty much over. But I think he can still have fun fights against some good fighters uh, who are still pretty relevant in the Bantamweight division. I think it'll be Trevin Joes, but I will be curious to see who he gets matched up with next. Because I don't want to see Garbrandt fall into that run of, hey, you want to fight this power prospect with huge punching power? Like, I don't want to see Cody Garbrandt just become that guy. Can Cody Garbrandt, Augusto Sakai, Dante oh, Mays? We're going to find out coming up this weekend. Both of us going with no love to get the win. And maybe if he wins, I'll get a diamond with flames. It's wow. self-made on my throat. Not a chance in heck. Big time fights left on this card. Bo Nichols debuting against, oh my goodness, Jamie Pickett. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Coming up this weekend to kick off the main card of UFC 285, we have the Penn State legend, the three-time Division I All-American, the Dan Hodge Trophy winner as the 2019 Best Collegiate Wrestler in All of America, the 2020 Olympic hopeful, Bo Nickel, and he's going to be taking on the Nightwolf. Ah! Jamie Pickett, and for Jamie Pickett... He's trained at a Port City sports performance for a very long time, training at Jim O Tribe. And you want to see a guy training okay. at that gym for a matchup like this with guys like Joe Selecki, beat Carl Deaton on last weekend, with John Salter, the coach at that gym. Man, that guy's going to grind on you and submit you. And with Chris Weidman, the All-American. So maybe just a nickname alone, that'll help out Jamie Pickett. But for Pickett, he's a guy that's in an odd spot, he right, career-wise. Yeah. One and two on Dana White's Contender Series. He lost the first two fights. He gets the win over Jonathan Patsy. That crazy blitz across the cage. Throws like 30 unanswered punches. Gets the win. In the UFC alone, Jamie Pickett, not a positive record. So he's two and four in the UFC. Not the greatest. And he's going to be taking on one of the biggest hype jobs. And it's deserved. I, yeah. It's deserved. In Bo Nickel. And for Bo Nickel, you look at him, I talk about his wrestling. He was the guy that Masvidal brought in to wrestle with for Kamar Usman. But Masvidal's not Kamar Usman or Bo Nickel. And that's where MMA fans started to hear a little bit. I would say that helped Jorge Masvidal's takedown defense, wouldn't it, you? Like, it, he did a pretty good job defending takedowns in those fights. But you think of Bo Nickel as this wrestler. You look at him and he looks like a wrestler. He's got cauliflower You watch his fights. So he had two amateur fights in 2021. He became a pro in 2022. And in the summer of 2022, won three fights. His debut is against a 36-year-old named John Nolan. And in that fight... John Nolan was like Betch Cohea because Nolan. he goes, let's go. And then he eats a left hand and he gets dropped and he gets finished. Bo Nickel goes out there, fights on Contender Series early, takes on Zach Borrego. Borrego, decent amateur record, decent pro record, misses weight for the fight. Bo Nickel runs across the cage, takes him down, flows between grappling positions, yeah. submits him. Then he goes out against CFFC champ Donovan Beard. They stand at distance a little bit. 
Bo goes out there, throws the head kick. He throws the body kick, and Bo loves to throw head kicks and body kicks. Bo striking is very good. Yes. And if you don't know Bo, Bo, Bo might know hockey, but Bo does he? Best. Bo knows best. Bo Nickel, when he goes out there against Beard, catches a kick, throws the left hand, kind of drops Beard in one, one fell swoop. Out of that, scrambles, he ends up in a great position, and then he gets the submission. Bo Nickel has finished all five of these fights. He's looked amazing, and he's finished them very quickly. It's tough for Jamie Pickett because, again, Dennis Tolulin dropped him twice in his last fight. Kyle Dawkins took him down multiple times en like, route to a we finish. We just say it's tough for Jamie Pickett. J- Jordan Wright kind of had that blitz and finished him. Now, Pickett was well-rounded against Loriano Staropoli, which is a win a on his record. Guy. He was well-rounded against Joseph Holmes, a big guy, a really big guy for this division. But for Jamie Pickett... I'd say striking-wise, better with the volume, mixes it up, has a more varied attack in moments than a guy like Bo Nickel. And we haven't seen Nickel tested out of the first round, but Bo Nickel is very, very good at like, not just a one thing, at a lot of things. Bo Nickel falls into the same category Damian Maya does. And what I always liked about Damian Maya was, I don't care who you bring in to uh, emulate Damian Maya, there's a good chance they aren't as good as he is at jiu-jitsu. Who are you bringing in who is as good at wrestling as Bo Nick? The All-American Chris Weidman is who he brought in. Even Chris Weidman doesn't have the collegiate accolades of a Bo Nickel. And that's saying quite a bit because Chris Weidman is a very credentialed collegiate wrestler. That just speaks to how good of a wrestler Bo Nickel was. Like, Bo Nickel's on a level with his wrestling that I just don't think a lot of people do understand. And to be... So he's in the same category as somebody, and Tatiana Suarez collegiately didn't realize those accolades, and she wasn't in the Olympics because she had the cancer and the neck injury and all of that. Bo Nickel wasn't able to get the wins in the trials, and then he didn't end up being on the Olympic team and wasn't able to medal. But for Nickel, same thing happened to Suarez, okay? Well, I'm going to transition into MMA now. And just like Tatiana Suarez, he's very, very good at grappling in MMA. And I know he doesn't have a lot of experience, but look at it in a similar vein that you do a guy like Alex Pereira. Like, he doesn't have a lot of MMA experience, but the experience in the martial art that he does have does translate over to MMA quite well. And that's the thing about collegiate wrestling. It does translate to MMA quite well. You know how I know that? Almost every champion in UFC history has had it in their back pocket at some point. Now, I know that's a a massive generalization, but wrestling has been one of the dominant forces behind MMA ever since its inception, all the way back when when Ken Shamrock was fighting Hoist Gracie. I just think for Bo Nickel, getting some of that MMA experience is going to be important, like you mentioned. Getting tested against some of the high-level fighters is going to really matter, but... Jamie Pickett has been taken down by guys who are not on the level of a grappler as someone like Bo Nickel. Now, I do think Nickel, with his striking style, might get him caught against guys like Robert Whitaker, but what I do think of guys who are going to test Bo Nickel, this is how you know a prospect's good, because I did this. I went through the top 15. Bo Nickel, I think, could have success against, like, six guys in the top 15 But can right Ronda now. Rousey box the men, Matt? No, she cannot. I just think for Bo Nickel, I just, like... For me to say a guy making his debut could possibly beat guys who are ranked just speaks to how high of a ceiling he does have. Now, I will be curious to see how good he looks once he does get clipped, once he does get dropped and face real adversity. Straight in the shots UFC. will hurt Bo Nickel. 
They will, but he has the ultimate answer to it. And it's, hey, if I get hurt, I can take you down and there's not a lot you can do about it. So hopefully Jamie Pickett can make this a competitive fight and test some areas of Bo Nichols' game that we haven't seen up until this point. But I still think Pickett has exceptional enough punching power to get that one-punch knockout that, you know, you sometimes talk about with a guy who's a big underdog. And he doesn't have Brian Ortega-esque No, and, and Pickett is very well-rounded in the matchup and he has to be commended for that. You've seen it in his wins. He's able to go out there, initiate the game plan, dominate his opponent, it and just kind of pull through in that respect but for me going with Bo Nickel in the matchup might not be a surprise to a lot of people obviously Pickett there's the, he can offer up some challenges but it is a, a very very difficult fight for him in this one and it's hard not to go with a guy like Nickel from the tape and the the sample size we see now again all five of the wins, the two amateur, the three as a pro, they were done in the first round. Donovan Beard is really going to prop you up as an acting CFFC champ that he fought on Contender Series. He was able to go out there and dominate quite well. And Donovan Beard's a pretty good fighter. I know he's a little older. He's only 7-1, but still. Nichols fought a good level of competition. I think he gets the win coming up this weekend, and it's going to be a fun fight that's on the main card of this pay-per-view. And if exactly. Bo Nickel loses, it's going to be one of the biggest upsets in all of MMA. I hope you have Twitter, because it will be And that'll fire. be fun, too, because yeah, you, you don't want to be on the wrong end of that one. No, but it's always exciting when you have a main, like a big mainstream prospect coming over to the UFC for the first time. That's what Bo Nickel is because he is a big deal in the wrestling community. Like he gets Jordan a lot Burles of Jordan Burroughs is going to watch this fight. Oh, without a doubt. So for Bo Nickel, again, hopefully he does get tested in the matchup, have to show us a new wrinkle to his game that we haven't seen yet. I just think his big X factor, which of course the wrestling is just a little bit too dominant. Some big fights left on this card, Matt. Matoush Gamrot taking the fight on short notice against Jalen Turner. You also have, oh boy, Jeff Neal taking on Shavkat Rachmanov. You're not going to want to miss it. Let's keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. On February 14th, it was announced that the back piece king, Dan Hooker, was going to be out of his matchup with the tarantula, Jalen Turner, and stepping in on the short notice. Ooh, boy. The former KSW featherweight and lightweight champ, gamer Matoush Gamrot, would step in in his place and Matt. That's an even bigger fight for Jalen Turner. Yeah. He gets all of a sudden now jump further into the rankings. Gamrod at number seven, Turner at number 10. And we have an amazing fight in this one because for Jalen Turner, I mean, yeah, did he lose to Vicente Luque years ago? Yeah. Did he lose to Matt Frivola? Sure he did. But if you look at it for Turner, he's won five fights straights, all five finishes, Kulibau, Brock Weaver, Uro Schmedich, Jamie Mullerke, and Brad Riddell very, very quickly his last time out. Turner's picked up some bonus money, and now he gets to take on a big name who's still at the top of his game, 21-2. and two. And if you're looking for Gamrot, his last time out, UFC 280, takes on a guy who is just forever away. It was Benil Dariush, and in that one, competitive fight. Gamrot wins the first round. That was an amazing fight. Yeah, Gamrot wins the first round. Dariush wins the second round. And the third round, well, it's an overhand left with More a minute Dariush 30 left. shows up. Dariush drops him, but what does Gamrot do? Does a backflip, and then goes right back in for a takedown. So crazy to it see that. It sounded like two metal baseball bats hit each other. The, the resolve there from Gamrot in that matchup. And if you look at it from Gamrot, you talk about resolve. Just the UFC. Forget about KSW, where most of his crew is taking part. But just in the UFC. His fight against Armand Zaruki, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And controversial decision aside, fourth round, spinning back this Zarukian, lands Gamrot. Just whoop, right back into the fray. And if you look at it, he also got hit by an overhand left from the southpaw stance against Guram Kutataladze. Whoop, right back into the fight. So for Gamrot, we've seen him drop three times in the UFC, but he snapped right back in those fights. And he's won two of those fights where he's faced some pretty major adversity. Now for Jalen Turner, 
and where I set it up, you're probably going, okay, well, A, Dariush was in southpaw, overhand left-landed, and then in the fight against Guram, left-hand landed, and then in the fight against Zarukian, it was a spinning back fist. Turner, giant lightweight, big range yeah. of southpaw, throws the power, that can all work in his favor, and Turner's really continued to round out the wrestling the, the grappling's been a problem in some of his fights, and it's kind of lent credence to the five losses that are on his career. But he's gotten better out of getting out of some of those positions. Exactly. And you know how good of a striker he can be. You saw that against Brad Riddell, opening things up, and then getting the finish. So, Turner, great opportunity against Gamrot. I absolutely love this fight. When I think about Mateusz Gamrot's chin, I think about that part in the song of All Nightmare Long by Metallica. Look, runs out because you worry about it at a certain point you had mentioned how he has spent a lot of his career in ksw those fights oh, were hard fights oh, too go and, watch the wars against norman park and that was a big part or that was a big conversation i had when gamera came to the usc it was did he spend too much of himself before he came over and not to discredit ksw like that's a good organization to spend yourself in it's just how much is there left of gamer and to his credit he has to be able to eat those big shots and recover from them but you do worry about him fighting a guy who has the punching power power and the snap on the end of his shots like a Jalen Turner because remember when uh, Vicente Luque who had never been knocked out in his whole entire career fought Jeff Neal it's those shots that don't knock you out immediately that just really wobble you but keep you in the fight those tend to lead to knockouts and I could see a world where Jalen Turner even if he has been taken down multiple times in the first round multiple times in the second round he has enough snap on the end of his shots to hurt Gamrat at any point throughout this fight and the weird thing about Gamrat because he is a good striker he does get into that kind of low position with his arms up it'll box a little bit but it'll box from a very squared position and that square position does limit some of his longer range strikes and the thing about Jalen Turner that you mentioned is he's so big that your kicking range is his punching range so if Gamrock can't get on the inside he is going to be in a world of trouble in this and, fight but and you mentioned it if Matt Frivola can out wrestle you in a UFC octagon Mateusz Gamrock oh, should be able to do the exact and same thing. And if you go back and watch that fight which I did today Matt Frivola's all over him, not just in the wrestling, but in the, in the boxing, boxing too, yeah. because Frivola crowds the distance, and then all of a sudden, Turner's just kind of left. Uh, is he going to take me but down? That's a dangerous gameplay. Like, telling a fighter, walk forward on Jalen Turner. Like, I guess. Sure. Look what happened to Brad Riddell. He tried. That got wobbled and destroyed. Like, it's a very difficult game plan to have, but I agree <laughs> with you. Matt Frivola, forever overlooked. But it's like it's like what they say when you're uh, pitching to a power hitter. you got to throw on the inside, so, not the outside, but they get all the extension on their so shots. So, when Matoush Gamrot was fighting at Norman Park for the first time in 2017, Jalen Turner lost to Richard Leroy. Richard Leroy on Leroy the regional scene. Jackie. Yeah, I was thinking of, like, uh, Oscar Leroy from Corner oh, Gas, okay, Jackass. But when I do look at this one for Gamrot, Matt, you know the lineage. He was an ADCC European champ in 2014 and 2019. He was a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. He was a wrestling champ when he was a much younger man, or as Billy Joel would say, when he wore younger man's clothes. Exactly. But when you look at this one, five inches of height and six and a half inches of reach to Jalen Turner. And one guy's a former KSW featherweight champ. Now, he was lightweight, 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 featherweight, lightweight, lightweight, lightweight. Gamrot isn't like a small lightweight Jaylen by Turner any means. Jalen Turner have to cut off his leg to make that. Jalen Turner is a big lightweight. So it really is the power, the size, and the advancements in the grappling from Turner. That's a funny thing. He ordered his Instagram and he's hitting a lot of pads. He's doing a lot of boxing. But we have seen 
an uptick in his aggressiveness with his submission attempts in his fights. And as he got in there with his own wrestling, well, that all depends. But this ain't the fight to showcase. This is one of those fights where you get a definite speed advantage with Gamrot. Now, that comes with foot speed. That also comes with punching speed. You obviously get a massive power advantage to Jalen Turner. It's just when oil meets water, what happens when those skills come together? So I love this fight. The slight favorite is the guy taking the fight on short notice in Gamrot. Tarantula slight underdog. We have a topology vote, Matt. Surprise us as it is to you. I don't even know where to set the over-under. I feel like the fans are going to go with Turner. So I'm going to say over-under 66% Turner. Under. And I will give my final prediction of the reasoning behind it in a sec. 75% Matosh Gamrot, 72% by decision for the 25% that I have Turner, 45% by knockout. Did everybody watch the free Vola fight? Uh, probably, but also, I don't put a ton of stock into this, but it's a good sign. Gamrot trains at America Top Team, one of the best gyms in the world. But if you want to break it down even further, we can say that a lot. He trains at a good gym, but who do they train with? Gamrot and Dustin Poirier have been training together for a lot of this training. Hasn't helped him with the left hand in these fights. No, but I still think that's a good precursor to a guy who I already give a big wrestling advantage to. I give the pace advantage to. And that's why I think it's a close fight that could end by stoppage either way at any point. We do say that sometimes. Like, I think Gamrot is probably going to win this fight 30-27. I think finishing a guy like Jalen Turner is very difficult because even if you do have success with the wrestling, a lot of what you're doing is focused on holding him down because you're so worried about the damage he can do once he gets back up to his feet. So I think for that reason, I do favor Gamrot. But if I say 30-27 Gamrot, Jalen Turner is probably going to win by first round knockout because like you would say you have to move forward on a guy like Jalen Turner but that's a very dangerous thing to do on a guy who has such incredible punching and power. And I'm pretty sure I made the mistake and I said that Gamrot won the Kutataladze fight but if you that's go back one. he lost that one by split but if you go back and you look at the wins performance bonus over Scott Holtzman performance bonus over Jeremy Stevens he finishes Carlos Diego Fajeda with that weird like knee to the ribs where is it over isn't well, it over. Well he came back too in that one. And then he submits him and then the win over Armin Zarukian coming into this one i have gamrot with the wrestling advantage but if you're gonna pick jalen turner out there you are a very astute person and i'd like to hear from you down below in the comments section we love to hear from you guys down below you keep that conversation going into fight night we're gonna cover this one on the sidekick and maybe i'll do a little bit of mouthful of that ko edition uh poirier's hot sauce for this one because you mentioned the southpaw in that respect some big time fights in this card matt Hands of Steel, Jeff Neal's taking on the Nomad, Shavkat Rachmanov in the next fight. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it. Top 10 welterweights collide. Coming up this weekend, the Nomad, Shavkat Rachmanov, puts up his undefeated record against Texan finisher, Hands of Steel, Jeff Neal, and this is a big-time fight in the welterweight division, and a lot of the big pundits in the MMA media world, they're all over the hotness that is Shavkat Rachmanov, and here at Fight Night Picks, we've been happy to have him since he came over from M1 Global, and he was an underdog in his debut against Alex Oliveira, and really excited about the stuff that Rachmanov did over with M1, the spin kicks to the body, you've seen the spinning head kicks oh, in the UFC, oh he tried it with Prezeris, he landed it on Harris, he's done some crazy things, but even when Rachmanov got taken down in fights with M1 Global, he threatened with guillotines, he'd go for submissions, and then he'd scramble out of bad positions. Rachmanov, one of the bigger guys that you're going to find in the weight, welterweight division frame-wise, but now he's taking on a very tough test in a guy like Jeff Neal. For Neal, he had all of the complications health-wise that you could have in the world. He came back off of that. 
And then he took on Steven Thompson, and he couldn't figure out the distance in that fight. And he was really chasing for a lot of it. Then he took on Neil Magny. A little bit of the same. Struggled with the well-roundedness of a tricky guy like Magny. And you might sell well. MMA math. One guy overwhelmingly beat Neil Magny. One guy lost the decision. So Rachmanov wins off that alone. Not necessarily because out of Jeff Neal in the last two fights, the Santiago Ponzinibbio fight, tough gritty fight, his last time out against Vicente Luque finishes him. And if you watch Jeff Neal fights, they're not all roses out of these wins. Go watch his fight against Nico Price. He gets dropped in that one. He gets put, put on skates more than once. But boy, oh boy, when he gets a takedown in that one and hits the ground and pound, he rallies higher than that. Jeff Neal doesn't care. And I mean that in the best way possible. Like, Jeff Neal's a big underdog in this fight. He's been a big underdog in a lot of his fights. He doesn't care about any of that. Like, Jeff Neal is who he is. And when he fights up to his full potential, he is a very difficult matchup for anybody in the division. He's like that lyric from the Beastie Boys. He's cool as a cucumber in a bowl of hot sauce. Oh, without a doubt. And the nice thing about Neal is, too, he's a disciplined fighter who will brawl when he has to, but in a good way. I don't mean that as a guy who will get very uncomposed and he'll feel the pressure in the pocket. He'll get a guy hurt, finish him, brawl when he has to brawl after he gets a guy hurt, like we saw in the Luke a fight. Like, normally when we talk about Jeff Neal, it's, hey, he hurts somebody and stays composed, but in the Luke a fight, he did with nine straight uppercuts just to get him out of there, and it was nice to see that level of aggression out of Jeff Neal, because if there has been any knock to him when he fights other guys at the top level, it's, he isn't able to hurt them like he is able to hurt guys, especially at the earlier part of his career, and he does tend to struggle with some of the movement of his opponent. Neil Magnet guy moves very well, he always has throughout his MMA career, unless you chop down the legs, and Wonderboy Thompson, of course, has some of the best footwork we've ever seen in MMA. The Ponsonville fight was a very close fight between those two guys. It was a split decision. Close fight, though. Yeah, and I know at the time I had it for Ponzinibbio, but a close fight regardless. Yeah, yeah. It, one of those, everybody won, because it was a very fun fight to watch, too. But what I did like out of Neil was, he did go after it in that fight. He didn't seem to be as on the back foot as he was in the Wonderboy fight. And I do look at Jeff Neal. The comparison's not perfect between uh, Francis Ngannou fighting Stipe and Derek Lewis, but a little part of me feels like Jeff Neal had his Stipe fight in the Wonderboy fight. It had to have that Neil Magny fight to kind of knock the rust off for him to then go on this run. And I don't know if Jeff Neal's going to be able to go beat everybody in the top 15, but he's one of those fighters that you want to see fight everybody who's ranked because he has good takedown defense, so if you're a great wrestler, it's going to be tested. He's a phenomenal striker, of course, who's got a really good chin, good gas tank. Like, he just checks all those boxes, what you do want a very promising prospect to have. But I get to pat myself on the back because I have been talking about Shavkat Rachmanov and how he should be in the top of this division for a long time. Now, I know it's difficult to just jump a guy into the top 15 without actually going through the opponents, but when you did look at Shavkat Rachmanov on his way up to the UFC, you just had to look at the skills that he had, and he had every skill there was. He is a great kickboxer. He has some of the uh, submission ability, and we talk about a lot of fighters like this. Like, Yair Rodriguez is a fighter who has great striking and great submission ability, but he lacks some of the wrestling transition ability. Shavkar Rachmanov has the bridge between his submissions and his striking that a lot of these fighters do lack, and that's why I have had a lot of confidence and in him on his way throughout the UFC. Shavkat bullies a lot of these guys, and against Neil Magny, he put him in a physical. pretzel very early on. Against Michelle Prezeris, he just kind of hung on the outside, and the commentary praised him on his jab, and he pawed out there, and Prezeris would try and come in, and then he started to get really confident in that fight, and Prezeris, I mean... And 
Harris is a good fighter that nobody's Car going to give credit Car for. Carlston is Harris' yeah. guy that you want to see fight every weekend because his grappling's insane, his front chokes are great, and his striking sets everything up. And Rachmanov, again, Said was able to land the takedown. He's able to go out there, and then once it hit the feet yeah. again, spinning wheel kick. But when you look at Rachmanov, I say for Jeff Neal, he's a Texan finisher. Rachmanov, you've seen it by now in the graphics. Perfect. Eight knockouts, eight submissions. And for him in the UFC, he's continued to get it to go. And even before the UFC, you talk about the level of names. And you might not recognize some of the fighters, but you should recognize Jun Young Park, catch weight at 176. And he was able to go out there and win that one. In the UFC, I mean, like, I, it's it's hard not to mention, again, for Jeff Neal, you look at him, he was one of the early Dana White's Contender Series successes, not the filler that you've gotten in some of these other seasons. But the wins in the UFC, first fight in the UFC, beats Brian Camozzi. Beats, they gave Brian Camozzi higher matchups in the UFC. Beat no Frank favorites. Camacho, beat Bilal Muhammad, beat Nico Price in a fight where there's two head kicks from Nico Price. Then they land Dan Hardy, Carlos Condit, double hooks oh, yeah. at the same time. Now, Jeff Neal's credited with a knocked or being knocked down. Nico Price lands on his knees and then lands on top. So it was kind of wild how that one happened. And then Jeff Neal decimated Mike Perry. So it's been a weird career arc for Jeff Neal. We've obviously seen him tested more than a guy like Shavkat. But the thing that Jeff Neal can do that some of these other guys haven't in the UFC with Shavkat is bridge distance in a fight like this against Rachmanov and ha have him figure out, are we at long range, are we at short range? Because some of these other guys haven't been able to do that in you these are short right. fights. But the problem is, Jeff Neal still has to get on the inside of Rachmanov's range because of how big he is. So, Neal might be able to dictate what the range is, but all of Jeff Neal's ranges are inside of Rachmanov's. If Rachmanov is using his kicks and if he's on all the way on the outside he's actually probably going to be the one who's able to dictate the range, especially with his wrestling, because Jeff Neal's a good defensive grappler. He does have good submissions in his back pocket. But if we just talk about pure offensive wrestling, I don't think these two guys are on the same planet. Rachmanov bullied Neil Magny, and Neil Magny has weaknesses in his game, but that weakness is normally leg kicks and overhands. It's not normally wrestling from guys who aren't from America, because, like, being Colby Covington is one Master sport thing. and combat sambo and MMA. Shout got Rachmanov. Rachmanov just doesn't have a lot of weaknesses in his game and that's what normally a lot of people rest on when a prospect's fighting these guys on the way up is hey could they get knocked out by the one punch do they leave their neck open on takedowns Rachmanov up until this point hasn't shown any of those weaknesses and when his opponent doesn't have to take advantage of a weakness and when they are able to have success he has shown the fight IQ to then okay switch it up now I use my wrestling and go for the takedown oh you're a good grappler I defend your takedowns force you to be a striker I just think Rachmanov's I think he's going to make it all the way up until like the Gilbert Burns, Colby Covington, Kamaru Usman, Leon Edwards, Shemaev level. Because I think in the welterweight division, those were the names that immediately came to mind. So I feel like those are kind of a little bit ahead of everybody else. I think he belongs in that category, not to get my pick away too early. Well, a big fight. Both of us going with Shavkat Rachmanov in the matchup. He's a big favorite he here. Is, yeah. The topology votes, we won't leave it to surprise. 93% of them have Rachmanov. 62% by submission to get the win. We'll go with Rachmanov here, but man, a really fun fight. The odds don't suggest the level of excitement to this fight, exactly. so you, you can't wait for it on Saturday night. Some big ones on this card, Matt. The two that are left, Shevchenko Grosso for the flyweight title, John Jones for Sirogan for that heavyweight title. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fighting Apex, we always say. Let's get into it. it. 
Valentina Shevchenko's defended her flyweight title seven times in a row. Her last one, the toughest test, the UFC 275. She beats Tyler Santos in the matchup. She's gone away. She always trains at a gym that's not a home gym. And this time, she's training out of Japan, getting ready for Alexa Grasso out of Mexico. Lobo Gym MMA, MMA Gym's own Grasso. And for Grasso, it's been a weird run in the UFC. We've seen some really high peaks. We've seen a couple of valleys on the way. Her last loss, a majority decision to Carla Sparza about three and a half years ago. But the win streak, Jiyun Kim, she's able to beat Macy Barber. She's able to beat Joanne Wood. And her last time out in a main event back in October, beat Viviani Arujao. Grasso finally starting to hit that peak that a lot of people had for coming into the UFC all of those years ago. Where Shevchenko now, a few weeks away from her 35th birthday, is she on the decline? We'll see how it plays out. But a big time matchup in this women's flyweight division. Little bit of a surprise that this is the title fight that they went with because... Grasso had a great win in a main event. That has to be said. And Viviani Arruja was a tough test and it was a really close fight. We've had some fighters that have had higher highs and bigger finishes, thinking of Manafiaro, but a deserved shot and a new opportunity, not the same old, same old. And like you said, Grasso has been on a very nice run in her career, but I do agree with what you just said. I think Santos, Blanchfield, Fielho, and I know you can't really say Blanchfield because her biggest win was so recently. And this title fight was already booked. Exactly. So that one doesn't really count, but still, Fielho, I would agree, is a little bit more deserving, but still, for Grasso, I think she can have success in this match because I've been saying this every time we brought up a real flyweight contender for the last six months now. It's, hey, I think Shevchenko's still a very skilled fighter. She's still very athletic, but I do think we are starting to see her decline a little bit. Now, is she still able to switch it up on her opponents, go for the wrestling when they're a great striker, be able to outstrike them when they're a great wrestler? Yes, she has been able to, but her opponents are starting to become a lot more well-rounded now that she has been at the top for so long. Like, Ronda Rousey is this, but of course she was from a very different era. It was, hey, everybody else is now starting to catch up to you because, to your credit, you were able to set the bar so high. And for Shevchenko, at one point she was thought of as the number one pound-for-pound women's fighter in the world. I know Amanda Nunes had beat her twice, but still, Shevchenko was thought of as, hey, if they ever have a third fight... There's a good chance she'd be able to win that one. But well, this is what I keep on falling back to with this matchup. And it, it's not me taking anything away from Alexa Grasso. If you look at who her recent wins are over, it's that people who have been a weird stage of their career. Like the Wood win isn't over Joanne Calderwood. Like Joanne Calderwood was a really good fighter. Wood hasn't been on the best run of her career. And for Grasso, the lack of takedown defense does concern me. And the lack of ability to get back up to her feet. Because the one thing Grasso does that I don't look at as a positive whatsoever, she's not a poor grappler, but she tries to get offensive with some of her strikes off her back in the full guard position. And I think a lot of that energy should be spent getting back up to her feet because she'll give up a lot of time for that spot. Now, net positive, Grasso beating Wood. First career submission win. First one the OC yeah. that we get to see. So you do like to see that out of Grasso. For Shevchenko, it's weird because you talk like peaks and valleys. You look at, let's say that the Santos win was a valley. I mean, there were a lot of people that were vocal that they thought that Santos won. There were a lot of people that were less vocal that thought that Shevchenko won. You look at it, she beats Laura Murphy and decimates her before that. She finishes Jessica Andrade. She beats Jennifer Maya. Now, Maya won one round, and she was able to out-grapple Shevchenko. But Shevchenko looked good in that one with the striking. And she finished Caitlin Chukagian before that. And I can go through all of these fights, and I can break them down minute by minute, strike for strike, and talk about all the strengths and the weaknesses. But what I've seen out of Valentina Shevchenko, not necessarily the Tyler Santos fight, but even of late, as champ, offensively taking these women down and having a lot of success with that. And I... To me, I see that in a fight against Grasso. Now, Grasso, to her credit, has gotten better. 
She's gotten better as a grappler. We've seen that in these fights. And I think that the work that she gets here and there with somebody like Lupita Godinez, that's going to help her out in fights of this ilk, of this stature. Somebody who can wrestle like that well in MMA fights. But in this one, Grasso's going to have to put up a lot of volume with her boxing against somebody like Shevchenko. And I think Shevchenko utilizes her kicks a lot better on the outside than somebody like Grasso. And that's why I think that Shevchenko can win outside of even the grapple. Not that Godinez isn't good, but that's like saying Malachi Flynn's getting ready to play like against Steph Curry. Like Valentina Shevchenko is one of the great fighters of all time. She really is. Like I, she's only lost to Amanda Nunes. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all. It's I just said nice. she's one of the great fighters of all time. I compared Lupita Godinez to Malachi Flynn. Because Lupita just... Godinez fights. Malachi wears a tracksuit. She's not getting you ready for Valentina Shevchenko on a one-on-one level. I just said Dustin Poirier could get Gamrot ready for Jayla Turner and you push back on that. Poirier's one of the best fighters in the world. Like, Godinez has some of the skills that Valentina does. But the thing I agree with you is Shevchenko has gone for a lot more takedowns at this stage of her career. At 125, she has a massive physical strength advantage over a lot of her opponents that she didn't possess at 135. But the fight that always impressed me the most out of Shevchenko was the Holly Holm fight. She did body-to-body takedowns on Holly Holm, who is a significantly bigger fighter than her, and just completely outmuscled for a lot of that fight. Now, is it a fun fight to rewatch? Not at all. It's very boring. It's a lot of top control. But it proves just how physically strong a fighter like Shevchenko is. And even if speed-wise, she isn't at her best at this stage, stage of her career, I still think she can go back to that well of her grappling and have a lot of success with the top position. You mentioned it earlier, at least the fighter uh, was mentioned earlier on in this card, but I wonder if Shevchenko goes over to Japan, she comes out like a catch wrestler with a little bit of pancreation, she's looking like an old-timey Ken Shamrock in a matchup like this. I can't wait to see it, Matt. No surprise, both of us going with Bullet Valentina Shevchenko. Great opportunity for Alexa Grasso on this one. Technical boxing, recent submission win for her. Kind of switched things up. She's looked good at 125, but both of us in agreement with the champion to remain the champion. And in the main event, Matt, there is no champion. There's a former interim champ. That heavyweight with Cyril gone. There's the light heavyweight goat. Maybe all of MMA's goat. You let us know about that one. Keep it going down in the comment section. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's Let's get get into it. You're MMA Mount Rushmore. You get to pick who's on it. It could be Hoist Gracie. could be GSP. could be Demetrius Johnson. It could be all of these names. But when you consider it at the end of the day, we might have one of MMA's Mount Rushmore's fighting. It could be the GOAT. It is John Bones Jones. The return, three years in the making. Last time he competed, UFC 247 against Dominic Reyes. And he took three years to make the move up to heavyweight with Francis Ngannou gone and the title banished. He's going to be taking on France's former teammate, the former interim champ at heavyweight, Bon Gamin Sidogan, representing France. Matt, this is an all-time fight at heavyweight. This is a poster fight, and I think the UFC did a pretty good job with the poster. This is like Brock Lesnar, Alistair Overeem levels of poster. I love the fight. fight. I can't wait to see it for Jon Jones because in the last three years... Just with Fight Night Picks alone, we've done videos. Could he become the heavyweight champ? What's he going to look like at 250? Because there were points where John Jones was posting pictures, and he was bulked up. Now he looks better. But he was exactly. in the bulking season. He was Maybe he was sitting on the couch eating McDoubles and just loading the B- BJs, the Ben and Jerry's. But when you look at it for John Jones, and you consider everything throughout his career, 11 title defenses, two reigns as the undisputed champ, one as the interim champ before he was able to unify the belt. So it's just wild to go through it 
And look at all of the totality of his career. He had the legal issues, the hit and run. He had USADA issues. He had UFC 200 that fell out. And then all of a sudden, Anderson Silva's fighting Daniel Cormier. There's so many parts and parcels to unpack with John Jones' game. Everybody's going to tell you, well, guys... He was a JUCO champ in wrestling back at Iowa Central Community College. He was a national champ and All-American there. Yes, and we've seen some of the wrestling in some of these fights, and we'll highlight it for some sure. Of them. The other part about this fight week, Matt, Sidelgon. I mean, the guy was undefeated. He won the belt. It was against Derek Lewis. He gets the win out there, fights France Ngannou, who had knee sleeves and put the wrestling shoes on. And then Gon had to transition to, okay, I'm back in a main event. I got to get a win. Tai Tuivasa hit him with a hard shot, dropped him. Gon just gets back up, rallies around, and then Gon's able to go out there with his kicks, and especially his body kicks, and finish, and then really finish Tai Tuivasa in that fight. But Matt, the big story this week, the headline, and I'm going to read it off, it was an interview that came out 11 days ago. We're taping this on the Monday night of Fight Week. With Lassuera, he said, J'adore le grappling et malheureusement je suis fainant. La vérité c'est que je prépare... Je, um, the quote was in English. Too. No, it wasn't. Et je prépare et je m'entraîne quand il y a un combat annoncé. It was in French because it was a French interview. But out of it, Sidelgan, in other words, said... I train before, like when I have a fight and the fight is signed and it's announced. And apart from that, I don't. But if you really listen to the whole 40-minute interview, he says, I used to do that, but now I'm into it. And and his his coach, Fernand Lopez, came out and said the, the same thing. Like, he used to do that. He's fully entrenched in the training for this one, getting ready for the grappling, getting ready for everything. But now, all of a sudden, there's noise and there's question marks around Gon's training. And likewise, John Jones, three years away, you expect him to fit into heavyweight well and to be training all these skills that we've seen being the GOAT of MMA. But the last two times we saw the GOAT, he didn't look like the GOAT whatsoever and couldn't get the thing that he is best known for. Like you say, wrestling in some of his fights. John Jones at wrestling is like his big X factor. Like his grappling is what he's best at. And it's not a controversial Look at him at against all. Gustafson. Well, just most of his fights, he gets on top of people, beats their head in, and then submits them after he beats them up with ground and pound. Like, John Jones is some of the best ground and pound in MMA history. He has elbows, he has hooks, he throws a combination on the ground. Like, my favorite Cain Velasquez highlight is when he knocked out Noguera, because after he hurts him on the feet, he throws in combination to knock him out on the ground. John Jones does the exact same thing. Now, the thing about Jones is, I was joking with some of my friends about this the other day, they were asking me about this fight. John Jones, when he retires, isn't going to be one of these fighters who goes on to do, like, celebrity boxing type matches because if there's any knock about John Jones he doesn't have great pure boxing he's a great MMA striker don't get me wrong but he really does need to implement his own kicks into his game for him to really open up his hands because a lot of his boxing he lunges into shots his head's not necessarily in the right spot now if he's able to get to elbow range of course we all know how talented John Jones is with the elbows the spins on the inside too the two things that I keep on worrying about though and this kind of is a bit of a negative for both guys I'll say is that John Jones for as good of a grappler as he is, couldn't take down Thiago Santos on two bad knees in their fight, and he also didn't have a lot of success with his grappling against Dominic Reyes. And in the first 30 seconds of the fight, he runs across in the first round, goes for a takedown, Reyes is hip to it, and pops him back uh, up. So I do worry about those things, but in the same vein, Cyril Gaon got taken down and convincingly outgrappled by a guy who had not shown any levels of MMA wrestling up until like, that point, who didn't have any knee in the fight either. Think, think about that for a second. Like, Francis Ngannou never showed an offensive prowess like, for wrestling. Jordan Levitt never showed an offensive prowess for striking until he takes on Victor Martinez and knees him into oblivion. 
wild stuff can happen in MMA sometimes. I know, but for Cyril God, like, grappling was a part of his game that he was good at, and he can get submission wins. I didn't think in a million years he would be able to get out-grappled off of his back by a guy like Francis, and that's why I worry about someone with Cyril God. I think offensively his grappling is good in that top position, but... A lot of heavyweights fall into this category. Unless you're Fabricio for Doom, it's really hard to sweep another guy who weighs 220 plus pounds off of on top of you and then getting on top of them. John Jones is so much better at grappling than Francis Ngannou is that if it is as big of a weakness in his game as it was in the Francis fight, John Jones is probably going to take down Cyril Ghosn in 30 seconds and ground and pound him in the first round. Like, that's how big of an advantage I think John has in the grappling in this matchup. Now, Ghosn does have that one thing we talk about quite a bit. If you can't defend the takedown, what do you do? Use your feet to get away from it. And of course, Cyril Ghosn has some of the best footwork we've really ever seen in the heavyweight division. That was a big sales point before the Francis fight. It was, hey, this guy can get on the inside of the pocket and on the outside of the pocket without eating those big shots. But again, he did eat one of those big shots his last time out against Tai Tuivas. I just, for Cyril Ghosn, I can admit this. I, I was open about this on the channel. I never really bought into the hype until the Alexander Volkov fight because he was tested in that matchup and I thought he looked good after that. But it feels like once I finally bought in with him, we have started to see some cracks in the armor so, with the wrestling with Francis and the striking with Tai. There's question for, questions for both guys. With John Jones, he gets the belt back. He beats Alexander Gustafson in the second fight. Now, look first look. fight, you see 165 in Toronto. It's a UFC Hall of Fame fight. So John Jones is already in the Hall of Fame, already 11 title defenses. He'll be there at the end. Regardless of all the noise and all the bad things that have happened in his personal life and otherwise, John Jones is a Hall of Famer. Now, you look at the second title reign, the defenses. Anthony Smith. He beat the brakes off him. He beat the brakes off of him, but he lost two points due to one illegal knee where Anthony Smith could have said, hey, that's enough, no moss, and he gets the title. He then goes out there and beats Thiago Santos. That one's a split decision, but more convincing than Jones' unanimous decision when at UFC 247 against Dominic Reyes. And at that time, 14-7 split in favor of Reyes from MMA Media, scoring that fight for Reyes over Jones. I scored round two, round four, round five for Jones. I thought Jones landed the harder, better shots in round two. Reyes landed better volume. But the people that like Reyes or had Reyes to win said one, two, and three. Reyes outlanded him, and then he started to tail off in the championship fights. But a very close fight, a very good fight. I can't sit here and confidently say I know what John Jones is going to look like after three years and having gained weight moving from 204, his last official weigh-in, call it 205, up to heavyweight. I don't know what he's going to weigh. Assume around 250, 240 What if he just turns into his brother Chandler? Man, that guy was a beast. No, but that's what I but mean. But if he like, turns into Arthur, he's got a problem. But, like, if he just becomes Chandler Jones, the heavyweight division, and just mops everybody, that'd be wild. But if he turns into Arthur, he might mop the match. Well, just, okay, focus on the great But brother. when you look at this for John Jones, I know the skills. I know how good the striking is, the kicks. I know how tough and durable John Jones is and for that's, I'm busting his toe that. against Chael well, Sonnen that's, that's still winning. The thing that people like to bring up about all-time greats who don't face a lot of adversity is... Oh, well, how are they going to look when they do get hit? To John Jones's credit, when the going gets tough, like, he can get really tough. And I know you don't automatically think of that when you... Because it is difficult to have an honest opinion about John Jones because your opinion does get clouded by all the kind of noise outside of the cage. But if you just look at what happens inside the cage, he has every single skill you could ever ask from an MMA fighter. He has great cardio, great takedown defense, the ability to go out there and take down Olympians in the case of Daniel Cormier. And again, when he does get tagged in fights, it's not like he has some brittle chin and poor cardio. Like, when the going gets tough, like I said, look at the Gustafson fight. 
fight. Gustafson starts out very strong, but Jones slowly breaks him down over and over and over. So I, this is as fun of a fight as there is out there. I will say this, though, and I hate that I have to tarnish it. I just wish it was Francis. Yeah, and I mean, for Sid gone, I've been on the bandwagon since he came into the OC because he was champ with TKO in one of the biggest cards you're going to find outside of the OC. TKO 48. Nate Manus was on that card. There were so many big, big, big names that ended up being in the OC that were on that one. Gone took on Adam Dykesa. Finished him and won the heavyweight title, or he was the heavyweight champ, and then he finished Dykesa, who was the challenger. Dykesa then went on a skid, became a boxer, and his career was never the same. Gone comes into the UFC and decimates the competition, and yeah, you might think, okay, well, he beat an old uh, Junior Dos Santos, but that's one of those win that gets you over the hump. The fight against Jairzinho. That was awful. Kind of boring because Gone's dominating the position. He's landing shots from distance. Is it and dominating if you're just using your footwork, though? Rosenstrike is very hesitant. The big thing for Gon is the kicks to all three levels, the athleticism, the stance switches, the boxing that's technical for Gon, who has a nice 13-0 Muay Thai record to go along with the 11-1 in MMA. As good as Gon's kicks are to all three levels, John Jones and his kicks, we just talked leg kicks and the volume. Against Reyes, 43 leg kicks. Against Santos, 32. Against Smith, 45. Against Gustafson in the second fight where he finished him, 18. Against DC in the second fight, 30. Against OSP, 46. Leg kicks are a big thing for Jones to slow down his opponents, to go along with the takedown defense. And if I just take the second fight against Daniel Cormier, Cormier is unsuccessful in all takedown attempts, and he crowds John Jones with his boxing and pushes the pace the whole time. He's marching forward. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. Locking eyes, doing everything somebody should do to beat John Jones. And what does Jones do? Lands a tough shot, lands a head kick, and then drops, well, wobbles him until he drops him and finishes him. So for Jones... My big red flags, the layoff. I don't know what he's going to look like with the weighted heavyweight. Not a tune-up fight. Sure, in a title fight against Cyril friggin' Gone. And Gone has a lot of the answers to beat a guy like John Jones. And Jones threw it out there on Twitter. Well, people are saying Gone is the best striker I face. But really, I mean, Thiago Santos had better footwork and he was a better striker. I think Gustafson is primes better than Cyril Gone. That, they're different, but his boxing was so They're good. different. And Santos, longer in his MMA career... More had miles. No knees after the, the knees got round. rocked, and even Santos put on a great performance in that one. And we didn't really see the wrestling as much as we've seen in the past from Jones in that fight and the race fight. So I have a ton of question marks on, on the uh, question marks on this one, folks. And I, I kind of just fighting the internal struggle of trying to make the pick and prediction on this one. The slight favorite is John Jones in the matchup. Now, Matt, we threw this one out there on our YouTube community tab. We get you guys to vote on this one. Over a thousand votes, 62% with John Jones in the main event. So we'll go through a few of these comments, make sure we highlight some of the people that are commenting on this one and really interested in this fight, Matt, because it is it's like this is a one. this is a big time poster fight for sure. So out of the comments, we have uh Cameron. Initially, when it was announced, I would have said gone, too many unknowns. Uh, but if Ferranis Jones on his day is capable of anything and anyone's coming back to a straight title, it would be him. One and only, can't wait, MMA GOAT Johnny Bones Jones finally makes a long way to return. And new, uh, we got Jack Lawson, the GOAT doesn't lose to a half French dancer. That wow. one's just rude. Uh, and let's go with one more. Kenneth, if Francis can wrestle you and win, John Jones will destroy you. Uh, we'll see about that one. Obviously, Gon's going to work on that. And Gon, in that interview that he did with last year out, I listened to the whole 40 minutes. The weirdest part about the whole training thing was he was like, Nasruddin, Nasruddin tra tra trains three times as hard as I do. Lapalus, Lapalus trains three times as hard as I do. But then he'd circle back and he'd say, but this camp, like, we're ready for it. 
We were getting into it. Training's not an issue. So everybody ran with the headline when it got translated into English. But if you really listen to what he said, it, there weren't as many red flags of the interview as it was kind of initially thrown out there. Headline on a Reddit. I, this different. is my problem. If Cyril God practiced nothing but his wrestling since that Francis Ngannou fight, that doesn't make up for the lifetime of wrestling that John Jones has in his life. And I do think that the physicality of God is going to allow him to defend some of those initial takedown attempts. But I just can't get the image of Francis Ngannou all kneed up like Dan Kelly out of my mind of him out wrestling Cyril Gaon. And that might be me putting too much stock into it, but Francis Ngannou had shown no wrestling in the UFC. And when he did fight a pure wrestler in Stipe the first time, showed no ability to really use wrestling get-ups or any wrestling technique. So Francis basically in three years was able to learn enough wrestling to go out and win a heavyweight title fight in the UFC. Now... Is Francis Ngannou a one-of-one? One? Is he one of the all-timers? Yes, he is, and I think we do have to give him that respect. And as a side prediction, I would have said Francis would have beat John Jones. There you go. Me There's too. A fun one. The UFC made a giant mistake. But with that being said, I do have John Jones winning this fight. I, I worry about how he's going to look up at uh, 265. I keep on wanting to say 205 when I mention John Jones. But I do think his overall grappling does get forgotten about quite a bit. Because if you look at his last couple of fights, I know Dominic Reyes was able to defend the takedown. But even look back at Dominic Reyes versus Chris Weidman. You bring up the fact that Chris Weidman is somewhat comparable to Bo Nickel with his wrestling. Chris Weidman had one of the deepest entries I have ever seen on Dominic Reyes. And Reyes was able to dig the underhooks and get them and get back up to his feet. I just think Reyes has underrated takedown defense and that was showcased in the Jones fight I don't know if Gon's gonna be able to do that I think he'll be able to defend them in round one round two but I think at a certain point Jones will be able to get him to the ground and the thing about Jones I had mentioned it was if he gets a takedown it's not to like win the round it's to get on top it's to elbow it's to go for submission so for those reasons I have John Jones but I'm incredibly excited for this fight because I do think Cyril Gon is one of the few heavyweights who has a speed advantage and has enough of the technique that you look for because heavyweights not a division that we often talk about for technique and I do think Cyril Gaon has a lot of it I just keep on going back to the fact that he was out wrestled by Francis and John Jones is such a good grappler but he said Jadala grappling so maybe it's a thing Matt fear the dawn I know you love this album and you love, love the main White, song yeah. that's on it I think he's going to be taking me back and I think John Jones is going to be the one that's taking back the title in the matchup I mean for me Jones you, you know the legacy you know the fights by this point I mean Cyril Gaon is one of my favorite fighters to watch. I'll put that out there. It's not the most uh, professional thing to say, but I really enjoy a Cyril Gaon fight because he offers you something that you don't see very often in heavyweight. It's the footwork, it's the speed, it's the variety of shot, and we've seen it in certain matchups, and you might be so down on Don Mays off his matchup with Augusto Sakai because he didn't really show up for that one. In the fight against Cyril Gaon, he showed aggressiveness, and at the end of the fight, Cyril Gaon was taking it down and landing a heel hook. And that's not something that you see every day in heavyweight MMA. But for me, the well-roundedness of John Jones, the wrestling advantage that I perceive he'll have at heavyweight. I don't know if he's going to have it. The striking that I've seen once he cuts that distance, like tied to Ivasa with the limited amount of volume he was able to throw. With a glancing right hand, drop Cyril Gaon. John Jones can cut angles like that. And Jones strikes very well off the back foot as well. So we'll see how that plays out in this matchup. The kicks are going to be great. The fights are going to be great. Oh, yeah. The sidekick on Saturday when the main card goes down two hours before the prelims. Question mark kicks on this channel. Eight and two last weekend on a wild impromptu card. I mean, Matt, it ended up with a three-round main event. Yeah. With Andre Muniz taking on Brandon Allen. I switched the pick late, and I don't like to cheapen the previews and the predictions throughout the week, but I had a change of heart on Saturday. I switched the pick, and it worked out that time. But, Matt, some giant fights on this card. 
four debuts, Ribovics, Rajabov, you've got uh, Farid Basharat, and then Bo Nickel. Some great fights, 11 ranked fighters out of the 28 that are featured on this card. I know we're really amped up for Jeff Neil Rachmanov, for Gamrot versus Turner. Derek Brunson, Drake Duplessis, I can't stop talking about. There's a lot for pretty well everybody, so I want to thank everyone who tuned in. We lessened the chokes, so we went hard on the analysis this week. But, Matt, some really, really big fights coming up this weekend. Okay. Hopefully, we, we gave them their due and gave them some shine. 285 is going to be a great pay-per-view. This is one of the big ones. Hopefully, you guys are excited for it. Enjoy it. Check us out throughout the week here on the channel with the individual drops. Question mark kicks, the sidekick, the likes, and the subs. They've been going up, so we really appreciate it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it.